We dumped some of their kind there. What? The joints. They left the weight outside. We don't want them. Hello and welcome to the Vintage Rebellion Podcast. I'm Richard Hutchinson and I'm your host at episode 96, Narayan Num. Joining me as always is Peter Davis. Good evening, Pete. Oh, it's too hot to say hello. Well, Pete, how has this scorching weather affected you personally? Oh, I can't stand it, Richard. I, can't, I really hate it. It'll give me rain every day. Every day. I just love rain. This hot stuff. Oh, dear. I had to do my kids' football presentation in this weather. I think I almost died. And next on the list is Andy Spoonsorton. Good evening, Andy. Good evening, Richard. Andy, why did the British talk so much about the ruddy weather? Do you know what? I often think about this, and then any clients and people I've spoken to today, it's pretty much the first bit of conversation I've had with them. I think it's just in the genes, Richard, in the genes. It's not a weather for genes, is it? Well, in a nice air-conditioned office, I've been wearing my jeans today. I stepped outside and thought, where's all this hot weather come from? It's good evening, Jason Smith. Hey, Rich, how you doing? Jason, can you think of anything else that we complain about as much as the weather? Oh, traffic. Oh, good shout. Absolutely. We love a good morning about the journey to work, don't we? Mine's on foot. It's quite nice, really. And next we have Andy Preston. Good evening, Andy. Good evening, Rich. Andy, you probably remember the scorching summer of 1976, as my mother goes on about, you know, forever and ever and ever, because I was born in August of 1976, and she never lets me forget about this famous summer of 76. How does this summer stack up to previous ones? Uh, I'm sure I can remember it being hotter. Um, I mean, although down here in the southwest, it's not been quite so bad as uh, the rest of you guys have had it, I think. But yeah, summer of 76, I do remember that. I am that old. Uh, I can remember looking at the ground and seeing sort of cracks in the in the earth and uh, thinking, wow, you know, I've only ever seen that on telly in places like Africa before. Um, so, yeah, that was that was hot. But uh, this this is getting up there. I, I'm from the very north of Scotland. So it was probably snowing where I was. Well, I said exactly the same as yesterday and probably on Sunday as well that I certainly know of temperatures that have been hotter than what we've got now. Yeah, all these official records that are being broken, many of them have only been out 12 months, so it doesn't take a lot to beat them. Certainly a lot of it has to do with what I call the mugginess up here, so it's because it's been quite clear it hasn't really affected me quite as badly as what it may have done. But I had my suit on most of the day today and I was certainly out in the yard in the sunshine, you know, wearing my uh, black suit much to the amusement of some of the children. Right, let's move on to our show then. So it looks very much an action-packed, chock-a-full show, this one. So we're going to start off with our introduction. And I'm guessing that this is Andy Preston, because I can't think of anybody else on our team who would actually be interested in cricket. 
But for the intro question, he's put there, summer in England means it's cricket season, googlies, sledging, golden ducks and silly mid-ons. Now for American listeners and anybody who was born outside of any of the cricketing counties, of which there's probably only about six of them left, cricket is a very simple game. You have two sides, one out in the field and one in. Each man that's in the side, that's in the field, goes out, and when he's out, comes in, and the next man goes in until he's out. When a man goes out to go in, the men who are out try to get him out, and when he is out, he goes in, and the next man goes in, and goes out, and goes in. When they are all out, the side that's out comes in, and the side that's been in goes out, and tries to get those coming in out. Sometimes there are men still in and not out. There are men called umpires who stand out all the time, and they decide when the men who are in are out. Depending on the weather and the light, the umpires can also send everybody in, no matter whether they're in or out. And when both sides have been in, and all the men are out, including those who are not out, then the game is finished. So there you go, very, very quick overview of cricket. Richard, that, that's that's not cricket. What's he on about? Well, it, it is. me. It is actually cricket. I'm but a cricket fan. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I'm not really a cricket fan. I don't like playing cricket. You know, I quite happily, um, you know, whack leather balls with me, you know, me oak bat back in my day. But it's something that I just can not watch. I despise don't like 2020 cricket, I don't like one-day cricket, I don't like five-day cricket. I find it incredibly <laughs> dull. So, <laughs> which action figures would we have in our all-star cricket team? Andy Preston, I'm going to come to you first, because I'm guessing, and, and I'm, massive apologies if it isn't you, and it's somebody like Jason, of which you know Scotland did have a cricket team, and I, I certainly remember that Andy Gray, famous Scottish footballer, also played cricket for Scotland at one time. Andy Preston, which action figures would you have in your all-star cricket team and why? Right, Rich. Uh, well, yeah, you're right. It was me put this in the show notes. I remember we did the same thing for football a while back, so I thought this might be amusing. So the first position I've gone for is the wicketkeeper. And who better to choose for the wicketkeeper than a man a man? Those enormous hands, those little stubby legs so he can crouch down behind the wicket. I think he'd be perfect for that. You can even see him wearing one of those floppy hats that um, Jack Russell used to wear. So, wicketkeeper, I have picked a man of men. Andy, I've got, I've got, you know, I mean, let's not go through everyone's, but I've put in FX7 because he's got hundreds of legs, can spin around, and you know, he can catch those things. He'd be, that'd be, that'd be awesome as wicketkeeper. What about Spin Bowler? That's next on my list. Pete, who have you got for? Uh, well, to... I, th- I think actually we better put a bit of context to these. So, so, so the wicket keeper is the guy who stands behind the batsman ready to catch the ball. So a bit like a, a backstop in baseball. Do they call them backstops? I know they're doing rounders. And the guy who stands behind the batsman ready to catch the ball. So moving on to bowlers next. And there are two main types of bowlers. We've got spin bowlers who sort of curve the ball and spin it in. And we also have fast bowlers who bowl straight balls. So let's go with spin bowler than um, Andy Preston, as you said there. Right. Well, who better to bowl a bit of spin? Somebody who's uh, a bit of a maverick, a bit of a character. I think Lando Calrissian. Uh, I think he would be my first choice for a spin bowler. What better character to put to put a bit of spin into the Star Wars universe in the political sense as well as the uh, cricket sense? Lando Calrissian. Well, Andy, I went for Imperial Dignitary because obviously he's full of uh, spin in the Imperial Senate and uh, spinning all sorts of stuff for his little mate Palpatine. Palpatine. He is indeed, isn't he? Yeah. Career politician, yeah. Yeah, good yeah. shout. 
Would FX7 not be your spin bowler rather than your wicket keeper? Because his body spins round, doesn't it? That's what his middle bit does. Perfect bit of spin on that ball. Yeah, like that one, like that one. I, I would have uh, I, I would have a modern Disney team, which would have to involve, I'm going to say, uh, Baby Yoda as the ball. Baby Rankar with his big hands. He could be that guy who stands behind the, the, the sticks and catches the ball. And then and then maybe Baby Leia would be doing underarm bowling, you know, just really kind of throwing a curveball there for, for the, all the people who are trying to hit the ball, whatever they're called. Good choices all, Jason, but I don't remember any vintage action figures of those three. <laughs> well, I mean, you could, you could, you, we've lost him. You could use your vintage Rancor to uh, represent Baby Rancor, I would guess, and uh, you could use a Yoda figure to represent Baby Yoda and uh, Baby Leia. Um, you just have to um, get a full-size Leia figure and uh, chop her legs off. Yeah, or go. shove a, or shove Leia's head onto an Ugnaught. Yes, even better. There you go. Which no someone, needs, someone now needs to do that so I can see it. No wonder they don't play cricket in Scotland. Come on, what's a fast bowler then, Richard? Even you know that. Yes, I do. A fast bowler, somebody who bowls the ball incredibly quick, you know, 100 yeah. mile an hour um, plus. Difficult one, isn't it? Maybe it's the Ewok catapult? Well, it's got to be somebody who's a bit violent, you know, someone who's prepared to... He's, he's got to have strong arms, got to be a bit quick and uh, you know, aggressive as well. And usually tall. A lot of fast bowlers are tall, but- so... Darth, Darth Vader, isn't it then, Pete? That's who you describe him. Yeah, or, or Chewbacca. He, he, he's going to be aggressive. He's going to have that Wookiee natural aggression of running in and well, that Imagine ball. that scene on Bespin, though, where Darth Vader's hurling pieces at Luke. Imagine oh. they're just cricket balls instead. Exactly. It's going to be very accurate, though. It's going to be a bit boring when he's getting... He's, he's literally throwing the ball through people. Yeah, two good choices there. I like Chewie. I got Chewie written down. I think Chewie would be good at the sledging as well. He wouldn't have to actually say anything, just growl. That would yeah. intimidate you, wouldn't it? Exactly. Better than Murphy's in his prime. The other one I got written down for a fast bowler is IG88. Because, uh, again, height you've got, you've got long arms. Uh, you've, you know, we, we know how quick he can move from the Mandalorian, like we said before. So uh, he's my other choice at, uh, at fast bowler. His run would be a bit rubbish, though. Well, it might be, but he'd be a bit accurate, wouldn't he, being a droid? He could probably send it down the yeah. same line time and again. His arms would probably whiz round and round and throw it, again, so hard it actually goes through the batsman. Yeah. Literally. Killing him. So what about your all-rounder, Pete? Now, in, in cricket, all players have to play two roles, don't they? Because uh, when you're in the field, then all the players are there, either bowling or fielding or wicket-keeping. Uh, and then when you're batting, uh, every player gets to bat. So everybody's got to be able to do both. But the all-rounder is supposed to be a guy who is really good at both. Uh, who have you gone for for your all-rounder? Well, I've gone for the obvious one, Boba Fett, because he can not only fly with his jetpack all over the place, but he's got all the gadgets to catch the ball. He can catch it with his ropey thing. Um, he can fly around and zip around. The ball's going out for six. He can just shoot it. And it's not going out for six any longer. And he can also collect bounties on good batsmen. And bring him in for his team. So, you know, I think he is the all-rounder. Maybe a bit of regular yeah, cricket. All bowling and fielding attributes there, I think. Do you think he'd be much of a batsman? Uh, yeah, of course he would. He'd have some sort of gadget for that, I think. He'd probably, like, you know, catch the ball on there and he'd just throw it away with his with his rocket-powered thing. He would just take the ball to the boundary all the time. There we go. Any more shouts for all-rounder? Well, I went a bit more literal explanation. Max Rebo. Pretty much the roundest hey. character there is, isn't he? He said his, his organ is round. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he'd be my, <laughs> all, 
<laughs> he would be my all-rounder. Yeah, or rank or keeper on the same uh, <laughs> on the same logic. I'm not sure what an all-rounder is, but my 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 modern Disney team would probably have the Mandalorian and Boba Fett both doing those roles. I would think. Oh, very good. Well, I I went for a maverick. I went for somebody in the in the mould of uh, Ian Both and Freddie Flintoff. Um, somebody who's uh, a bit cynical, a bit of a joker. I I, th- I think Han Solo would be a good all-rounder. So moving on to the batsman, who are we going to have in bat uh, to to open the batting? So who chap who opens the batting's generally one of the best batsmen on the team. Somebody that you expect to get in and stay at the crease for uh, for some time and rack up some runs. Rich, you've not commented for a bit. Who, who, who would you have an opening batsman? I would have the Ugnaught because I think with his shaped bat, which will be his briefcase, he'll be able to. Um, it's, it's going to be quite difficult to get out, isn't he? I reckon he might be. I'm on the same sort of logic as you with one of my picks. I've gone for low grey, because if you imagine that great big staffy thing he's got, I reckon that would be a great thing to swipe the ball with. Oh, you throw a ball at an Ewok, he's going to go running running away, isn't he? Let's face it. You know, a bit cowardly. Hey, you, want a, you want a Nikto or a Yak face? Their, uh, their ones are the best bats. I think they're yeah. Willow, according to the uh, the EU. That's why I've gone with Barada, because not only if you painted him white... He'd look like a cricketer because he's got, you know, his slack, action slacks and his shirt. Um, he would he would look a very good uh, opening batsman. Also, he's got his his weapony thing. It's got a kind of like a bit of a squarish end to it, isn't it? So that'd be a good bat. Be whacking at everywhere. It would. Now, I've uh, I've I've also thought Darth Vader would be a good choice there because uh, I mean, as, as long as he had a a solid bat, not his lightsaber, because obviously he'd disintegrate every ball that came at him. But he, he's obviously got good batting skills. He's, uh, he's he's strong. He can wield that lightsaber like a you know like, like a two-ended sword from the olden days. And if a ball just misses his bat and he's edging towards the stumps, a little flick with his hand, and uh, it dashes off down to square leg, and he gets a couple of runs out of it. So well, with my my modern Disney team theme, I've I've gone with uh, Gamorrean guards using axes instead of bats. That's not a bad shout, to be fair. I like it, and they're wide enough that not much is going to get round them, is it? Exactly. You're never going to hit the wicket through his tummy. Yeah. Middle order batsman, somebody dependable, somebody that you can uh, you can rely on if all is going wrong, if you've lost your opening batsman cheaply, somebody who can steady the show, perhaps a, perhaps a captain of a team. It's going to be Lobot. I mean, you know, he's not letting you down, is he? Quite precise. Also looks quite crickety as well with his billowing sleeves. Um, I think he'd, he'd do quite well. He's very dependable. Always trust him. Not spectacular. We'll get the innings moving again. I, I like it. I like it. Yeah, same basis. I thought General Maydean. Yes, he looks very middle order. Yeah, bit of a um, bit of oh god, what was his name? Bob Willis? Uh, no, um, it was the chap with the beard. Gatting, Mike Gatting. Definitely a bit of Mike Gatting going on with Maydean. I'm, I'm going for someone on the other team, Ooh. the uh, Death Squad commander. Same same kind of reason, but he's uh, he's playing against you guys. You two on the same team, I think. Very middle of the road there, very middle of the road. I like it. What about your night watchman? Now, your night watchman is the batsman who goes in at the end of the day, and it's his job just not to get out. So he, he needs to be a really safe chap. He needs to be able to stand up to uh, a bit of uh, pace bowling. and He needs to stay there and steady his team, ready for them to come back refreshed and renewed the next day. Who's going to be your night watchman? On my modern Disney team, I've, there's only one man for the choice here. It's uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. R2-D2 for me is nobody more dependable than R2 when, let's face it, he, he almost looks like a wicked anyway, so you could just keep moving about, distracting everyone. 
I, I was going to say the same, Rich. His, his body, because I was thinking three-legged R2 from the droid factory, because his legs would cover the, uh, the the stumps. But then presumably that's leg before wicket. I'm not oh, afraid. Yes, yes. But then if you have the normal R2 and it's just his like, low body, you'd have to get a, a grass cutter to get under him, wouldn't you? That would be allowed. Oh, he's a bit, bit vulnerable there, yeah. I've gone with the gonk because it would take him hours to get out to the middle. And then by then, all the overs, all the time would have, would have gone. But the, the other side, the uh, the bowling side gets fined. And the gonk hasn't even got to the middle yet because he's just so slow. So uh, that's my tactic. I like it, Pete. Tactical thinking. Yeah. Well, I, I thought Jabber is <laughs> the primary job of a night watchman is not to get out. So I'm just going to sit Jabber there in front of the wicket. And I, I can't see the best bowler. I can't see Shane Warne getting Jabber out. Yeah, I think so. If he hits, if he just if he sits there for the wicket, it hits his big tummy. That's out. Although you won't be able to see the wicket, and, it, and, and, and the computer thing won't be able to work it out either. Jabber cannot get out leg before wicket though, can he? He's got no legs. <laughs> yeah, but it could be tummy before wicket, uh, before wicket, or it could be tail before wicket. Yeah, it could be. I, I don't think that's a thing. It, it, I haven't got my copy of Wisdom to hand. I haven't actually, I haven't actually got a copy of Wisdom. But. <laughs> well, it's any part of the body, isn't it? It's any part of the body apart from the, the hand or something. Yeah. yeah. So, unfortunately, yes. There we go. So, fielding. The guys whose job is to try and either retrieve the ball and get it back to the wicketkeeper as quickly as possible or to catch it. This was easy, get, Andy. Get the easy. side out. Get the guy with the big net, uh, 3PO with detachable limbs. I mean, you know, he's got a massive, great big net bag. You can just have it sitting there, and the ball's going to go in it every time, out. Fantastic. Yeah, when I was at school, anyone who was uh, really rubbish got stuck fielding, catching as far away as possible. So my, my, I, I'm putting in the Jetson gang, um, otherwise known as those, those modders from um, Mandalorian, because they were pretty rubbish. So we just, we just pushed them to the backfield and just let them get on with it. Yeah, I've gone for... Two, I've gone for a close fielder. I've picked Hammerhead. Long arms, big hands, springy legs. I think he would be really good close up. I think he'd get a lot of people out. And deep fielder, he's already been mentioned, but I, I would have Boba Fett. Because, uh, again, he can jet around, he can get in the right place. And if the ball is just that little bit too high for him, little squirt on the jackpot, up, up he goes, caught out. What about the Rancor? Get him out there, catch everything. He would. Not much get past him, would it? Exactly. They'd probably eat people and the crowd. Franco would just eat the opposition. Yeah, exactly. Just eat anything. Moves. <laughs> Win by default. Yeah. The other team, where are they? We've been eaten. Well, tough. Any more? Or are we done with cricket? Nope, I think we're done with our complete silliness, so time to move on then. <laughs> that's art, Richard, that is. That's going to go okay. viral. One man's art is another man's silliness. All right, then. So let's have a look at the topic then for this month. So Obi-Wan Kenobi season roundup. Now, obviously, we spent a lot of time discussing episodes one, two, five in the previous show. So we'll just have mainly look at episode six here and what our general overview thoughts are of it. Now, I've got to say that I was one of the few people online, by the looks of it, who actually was a little bit... I'm not going to say a letdown by episode six, because I wasn't. It was still an enjoyable episode, but I certainly wasn't blown away by it, um, which seemed to be a lot of the hype online. So I thought it was enjoyable, but I'll come to, I'll come to Spoons, um, first of all, because you're usually quite concise with your points. Um, what did you think of how Kenobi was wrapped up? I, I mean, do you know, Richard, it actually feels quite a long time ago now, is the, is the first thing I say. And, and as much as I loved Kenobi, and I think it is 
my favourite of the of the series purely because of the story rather than anything else. It's quite difficult to remember what happened. I'm I'm a little bit like you. Yeah, wasn't disappointed, but I was amazed, and everyone was saying it was the best episode of the lot. I seem to remember liking episode five the best, but I did I did really enjoy it. Fantastic action scenes. It's what Star Wars was about. I didn't mind, and you know, see people complaining about force powers and being extra strong, whatever. Didn't bother me at all. It was a, it was a cracking episode, and I'd I'd love them to have a, a series too. Now, I described the entire season of Kenobi, um, I'll come to you, Pete, on this one. Um, It wasn't a story that needed to be told. Nobody asked for it, really. But I'm lumping it together with, you know, Rogue One and Han Solo, um, you know, the the movie. None of these stories have needed to be told, but they've all been fun and enjoyable. And that's how I I put this. How would you rank Kenobi in the overall timeline? Um, Yeah, I don't disagree that it it was... I mean, I think I've said before, there was no point having this show from the start. When they announced they were doing a film, it was just, well, what's the point? I mean, he's going to be sitting in a hovel for a while. But I, I would say it's actually enhanced a bit of Star Wars, really, because, I mean, you think about it. Now um, now we know that Leah had a relationship with Ben. Um, it makes her naming her kid Ben all the more interesting, whether they had that in mind when they wrote that or it's just been, you know, it's just been emphasised. So, you know, her having a kid and naming it Ben before this series didn't really make much sense. It was like, oh, yeah, he was a famous Jedi. I knew for like two minutes. And now it actually has a bit of like, oh, OK, yeah, there's someone who actually saved their life. So little things like that have enhanced this overall story. I, um, again, if it didn't exist, would I care? Not really. But it was fun. I mean, I thought episode six was a good old fashioned belting fight. Um, lots of good fun. I think the only thing that really kind of let it all down a bit was they didn't kill off Reva. They should have just killed her off because, you know, she kind of served her story. She brought that, you know, that element of story that you needed to have without having to keep explaining what had happened between the two characters beforehand. So, um, yeah, it was fine. I, I don't think there should be a season two. Just leave it alone now. Um, can we move on with some of the characters, please? Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think it would have been far more powerful if Kenobi had killed Reva and had just said to her, you know why I've had to do that. Because, and I'm coming to you now, Jason, I think the big problem with this now is if you've got somebody who knows who Luke Skywalker is and can Reva be trusted? Well, can Reva be trusted? Who knows? Maybe we'll find out in season two. Um, the one thing I did... You know, you get these kind of backstories and they kind of, you know, when they play against the the, the canon we've got, there's kind of like odd, odd. It makes some of the things look a bit odd. You know, it's like it's like there's been this big, massive fight between um, Obi-Wan and Vader. And Vader is like, um, you know, got off much the worse a second time. Yet in A New Hope, he's still really keen to get his hands on Ben and have a rematch. You think he'd just be going like, yeah, well, Ben, I can feel Ben Kenobi's presence again. Well, yeah, he's okay. You just just let him go because you know because he's just going to get uh, beaten up again, you know. But yes, I mean, I really enjoyed um, the the sixth episode and the big massive fight and stuff. But I, I just if they do do a second season, I'm just wondering where it's going to go. What what story have they got left to tell? I mean, I, I wanted the original story, which was basically old Ben shuffling around the desert, bumping into sand people, Jawas, and um, you know, the occasional uh, Tatooine character every episode. That would be my 
season two. But there you go. Rich, just to interject, uh, did she actually know uh, anything about the boy? All she knew was the boy was important, but she didn't know that, you know, it didn't say anywhere that uh, the, the boy is the the son or daughter of Darth Vader. She, all, all she knows is that, you know, because I, mean, I, I think it's mentioned somewhere that she was just, just going to go and kill him to get revenge on Kenobi because she, you know, she still doesn't like Kenobi because of uh, she holds him for not, you know, stopping Anakin killing kids. Um, and that's what she holds him in. But I don't think it's ever mentioned that she actually knows who the child is because it'd be very hard to find out that information. But because um, when that vision thing comes up, you know, that, that communicator comes, it doesn't say, hey, come and rescue Luke Skywalker because he's about to be killed. It just says the boy on Tatooine and, and she knows that he's protecting him for a reason. So It's just too much of a look is so important that a Jedi has to position himself there to protect him. But he's left that threat. That that's what I didn't like. You know, the, the, he was there for one specific reason, and yes, he got pulled away for Leia. But you know that it's such importance that he's just left it open ended. Yeah, but it could just be a random, very powerful Jedi they're protecting or something. I but mean, the, there's nothing the, to suggest that. You wouldn't know, would you? The thing is, though, that I thought that was the whole. They were setting it up. Whether you know whether you like this or not, they were setting it up for a season two by basically saying Ben is happy with Baru and Owen looking after Luke. Now he doesn't feel he needs to, it's going to be all right, which sets him up to go off planet in which case, and you know, Reva's nice now. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Is my, is my view. They've, you know, that that's the, the line they've gone down. Um, clearly Reva doesn't, <laughs> doesn't betray him because Darth Vader doesn't know about him till, uh, till later on in the trilogy. So yeah, they're sort of setting it up for Ben to be able to go off planet and, and have some interesting adventures. And, and I'd be quite keen on seeing that, you know, it'd be, it'd be in line with, you know, not necessarily Ben, but the Marvel comics back in the day, you see the characters going off to strange and interesting places. Again, it's not much difference from, uh, Mandalorian doing it it's just different characters you know i mean actually my main worry about this is we, we are going to suffer a little bit of overload but seeing ben interact maybe go and find some other lost jedi that'd be quite an interesting storyline um i'd be yeah, quite keen to see that i guess they they could do the i mean, I mean you've had this whole build-up towards the sequel trilogy about um the empire you know, kidnapping Jedis and doing nasty things to them and keeping them in cages and keeping them in suspended animation. So they're obviously going to go somewhere with that. That's the only thing I could see them doing. Um, you know, Ben uncovered, you know, doing his detective job because he is a bit of a, you think in the prequel trilogy, he is, he is Obi-Wan Kenobi Jedi detective. And they could go down that route of him, you know, going off and finding what on earth is going on with this whole thing. That's the only sort of relationship I could see between him and Reva, her going, look, we've got to stop this because, you know, whatever they're doing is leading to something, i.e. Snoke and all that sort of stuff. So I can see it getting involved in there, but they're still doing it in the Mandalorian. So, um, Well, Andy, do you not think it's time to leave Obi-Wan aside, especially when you think back to, you know, how powerful Yoda still is and Yoda's went into exile. Clearly, um, I've said this before a long, long time ago. I think it was on the Forcecast podcast. It was on there eight, years and years ago. And I said Yoda ultimately is a failure. Uh, you know, he, he got defeated by Palpatine and then went hiding. And, you know, for Obi-Wan to do all these things now, 
and more or less become the detective or whatever you want to say and he's going out hunting Jedi. Surely there's so few of them now and he's so unused to his force powers, his focus has to still be to stay on Tatooine and look after Luke due to Luke's importance. Tend to agree, Rich. I mean, don't get me wrong, I've really enjoyed the Obi-Wan series. Agree with you, I don't think episode six was the end of the world in fabulous Star Wars television, but it was very enjoyable. I thought it was a really good bridge between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. Um, tied those together really well. Um, there were bits that sort of harked back and bits that uh, leaned forward. So, you know, that, that was that was really good. I thought the ending was a bit weak. Again, didn't like Reva being left alive and going off into the galaxy, knowing um, who Luke was, or at least knowing of this boy's importance. And it was all a bit anticlimactic, I thought. You know that Reva's not going to kill Luke. She's not going to kill Owen. She's not going to kill Baru. You know it's going to work out all right. There was no real threat there, I thought. For Luke, you know, when Ben Kenobi meets him at age 18 or 20 or whatever he is in Star Wars and gives him his lightsaber, how come Luke doesn't say, oh, yeah, there was a that lady came after me with a red one of these, didn't she? Back along, you remember that? Anyway, um, to answer your question, Rich... I wouldn't mind seeing a bit more of Obi-Wan, but not up against Darth Vader. That's been done now. That has been done to death. It would be cheapening the whole thing if we have us another Obi-Wan Vader face-off. What I would perhaps like to see explored is a bit more of the, the sort of Star Wars underworld on Tatooine. Ben was obviously familiar with a lot of the people in the cantina. He knew Moz Eisley. Um, he knew where the star pilots hung out. Chewbacca, I think he knew Chewbacca from Revenge of the Sith, didn't he? But uh, I presume he's been in touch with Chewie over the years. So whether there's an opportunity to do a sort of early Rebel Alliance story or a bounty hunter's story or something connected with some of the cantina creatures, something like that could be fun. Wouldn't have the same weight and gravitas as uh, Obi-Wan v Vader, but you know that that's an interesting direction that they could go without having to uh, tie it up too much in the original mythology. And Ewan McGregor playing Obi-Wan Kenobi is always worth watching, whatever they do with it. So, yeah, I'm up for a season two. So, I think uh, it was probably um, Andy Spoons who'd mentioned it, that we're probably mining too much in the same area now. So, let's move on to Andor. And I've got to say, Andor was the main series that I came out and was kind of like, they want to do what? Uh, because I did love Rogue One, don't get us wrong, I really enjoyed it, but I just couldn't see how that story could be added to in any kind of way, whether it's before, which clearly the Andor series is. I just didn't quite get the whole thinking behind that. Um, so let's come over to you first, Pete, then. So what are you thinking of the Andor trailer? Uh, well, the trailer was was wonderfully non-spectacular, which is always a good thing, because I think you know you build up on that so we've been given you know a very sort of basic kind of scenario you know there's there's andor and there's mon mothma and there's a bit of imperial stuff going on i see it there's nothing more so it's it's probably the most low-key trailer we've probably ever had but then finding out it's gonna be 12 episodes so they really are going to tell a bit of a story i'd imagine so my expectations are quite low for it and um, i think it's good that it's going to be in the sort of uh, just before a new hope kind of years so we'll get you know, we can play around with familiar settings and characters that we we kind of know of or environments but um yeah there's it's been very little said really has it i mean andor is not a character when i saw him in uh, rogue one that i was particularly enamored with i'm not saying he was a poor character it's just it's just like oh 
yeah, he's he's cool, gets the job done kind of thing. You know, he's also got a bit of history to it, and they deliberately gave the whole, you know, when I was six years old, I did all this sort of stuff. So I'm assuming we're going to get lots and lots of backstory. Um, you know, he's going to be growing up in the, you know, blowing things up and all that sort of stuff. So sort of like moderately excited. It's going to be another Star Wars series, so I'm going to watch it, obviously. But I don't really know. I don't really know what to expect. I would imagine we're going to see a lot of Mon Mothma. We're going to see a lot of Imperial Senate stuff, you know. So I think she mentioned the trailer, you know, she's walking out of a, a meeting and it's kind of one of those, oh, my goodness, you know, we're, we're in trouble. <laughs> you know, we haven't got long to go. We're going to get discovered here. Being older now, if as a kid, I would not be looking forward to it. Be, oh, that's going to be so dull. But now I want to see Imperial Senate intrigue and, you know, betrayals and backstabbing and double agents and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, I'm quite looking forward to it. Now, Jason, you've put new Star Wars contact, yes, please. I love a bit of Stellan Skarsgård. So do you want to explain that? Oh, yeah, well, Stellan Skarsgård, he's a stellar actor. I, I do like him a lot, and uh, it would be really good seeing him in Star Wars. Obviously, we've seen him in, um, in Marvel Land, uh, playing um, playing one of the, the, the professor kind of boffin types in the, in the Thor, in the original Thor movie. So, yeah. Stellan Skarsgård, very good choice of actor, and I'm very, very looking forward to seeing him in action. Andy Preston, are they not in danger of, such as what they did with the movies, oversaturating the market? Things are working. Uh, Book of Boba Fett was probably the weakest, and it could be forgiven because of the strength of Kenobi, and you know how, how much we're all looking forward to Mandalorian Season 3. Is this in danger now of getting people to go, oh, another series? I think the fact that it's not particularly one that the fans have called for, I think that might be its strength in actual fact. Cassian Andor is a, you know, yes, he was in Rogue One, he was good in that, but otherwise he's an unknown character. We don't know much about him. We don't know much about the story. I think, uh, you know, to give us something totally new, totally unexpected, but within that sort of pre-Star Wars era, uh, I think could be really, really good. Trailer looks fine. As Pete says, there's no story given away in there. Not, you'd, not that you'd expect that, but what it does tell you, it tells you that there's a lot of real world locations used. Uh, it looks gritty. It looks real world. It looks very much like Rogue One, really, which was supposed to be a war film in the Star Wars universe, wasn't it? And uh, uh, I'd love to see more of that, more sort of down and dirty with the guerrilla fighters, the um, resistance rebellion. And the the news that's come out, 12 episodes, as you say, the first two episodes dropping on the same day at the end of August. The first series is following uh, one year in Cassian Andor's life. Second series is then taking through the next four years up to Rogue One. First series focuses a lot on him, on his, I don't know whether it's his origin world, but certainly his home world at the time which is being taken over by the Empire. Uh, the Empire is um, you know, really coming down hard. They're expanding quickly. They're trying to suppress the local population. And this is obviously what stirs him into uh, into rebellion and joining up with a group of rebels. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it's sort of seeing on the one side how the Empire oppresses these planets and on the other hand, how the spark of resistance rises. And I think there's a lot of good territory to be mined in there. Boons, who is the target market for this? It's not really young children, or am I getting this completely wrong? And doesn't isn't young children needed to keep Star Wars going? Yeah, I think you think you're right there, Rich. It's, it's definitely targeted at the likes of us, the people that liked 
Rogue One. I suspect the fact it's Star Wars and young children, you know, have to be interested to know how many kids out there are watching any of these Star Wars shows without sort of parental accompaniment. You know, the, the people seem to be from sort of Star Wars families, talk to people left, right and centre, say, yeah, what, you know, people that you wouldn't class as big Star Wars fans saying that they're watching these shows with their children. So the fact it's just badged as Star Wars, I bet there'll be a few on, but yeah, I totally agree. I don't, it doesn't look like it's aimed at them. Um, it, yeah, I must, I've not been, I've watched the trailer once. It was a bit, if anything, I thought bits of it looked a bit space 1999. So I hope it's uh, at a faster pace than that was, uh, that was filmed. But it's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll watch it and, and I hope it's good. And, and, you know, even if it's poor, we're kind of in this, aren't we? In it to the end. I'm, no doubt we're all, we're all, we'll all watch it. It'd be interesting to see that show that finally you don't watch all the way through. So it's got to be around the corner, hasn't it? You know, some of the uh, some of the cartoons. I know you, you guys didn't watch all of what was it called? Resistance. It's pretty poor. Are we gonna Are we gonna have the TV equivalent? You know, the, the live action equivalent of Resistance at some point. Um, I hope it's not Andor. I watched all of Resistance. I don't know where you're going out there. Not every, not everyone here has watched all of Resistance, have they? No, I haven't. No, I got very bored I, after about three I, I episodes. Don't watch, I don't watch cartoons at all. So, oh, Jason. Okay. There you go, Richard. It's us, us two that are in it to the end. <laughs> All right, then. Let's time to move on to some vintage, then. So we saw latest acquisitions. Spoons, I'm intrigued by your entry on the show notes, so we'll go with you first. And so what have you picked up this month? Well, I think it's my quietest month for a very long time. Have, have I actually put anything in the show notes? Because I have purchased something. There's nothing in the show notes. Absolutely blank. Right. Yeah, well, I've been busy. Oh, God, I've been absolutely manic at work. So, uh, yeah. So uh, that's affected my buying as well. So this month, drum roll, for the first time ever in my collection, I own 12-inch Boba Fett Wookiee Braids. So, uh, yeah, a bit, bit the bullet and bought a set of those. So they're on my, uh, my Boba Fett. I just need the tip of his rocket now, and that's done. But I don't, yeah, I don't think I bought anything else. Bought, bought a bit of E.T., but that's not for this show. Uh, so that's that's me done. Well, going from that to, I don't know, somebody you could cosplay as E.T. Jason, do you want to go through your long list? It's uh, not that long a list, but I will certainly go through it. Um, the first thing I picked up after uh, a heated uh, online bidding war with uh, Mr. Preston was a Star Wars Palatoy poster art insert. So essentially it's a set of uh, posters, two posters and colouring pens. And um, it has a, an insert that sits on top of it that just sort of describes the posters and what's in the pack. Now, the Kenner version of this um, is a lot, lot, lot more common than the Palatoy one. So, um, yeah, yeah the, the, the insert came up, and that's all that there was. So um, I've got the insert, and uh, I've actually gone and ordered um, a sealed version of the Kenner posters, and I'm just going to wrap the art insert around the, the poster pack and kind of display it like that. So the posters that are inside are subtly different. They're the same size. But there's kind of like copyright information at the bottom of one of the posters, and uh, the Palatoid version is different from the the, the Kenner version. So um, I'm, I think I'm going to keep my eye out and see if I can get one of the Palatoid ones for, the, for one of those. But um, I, again, they don't come up very often. So I've got that. 
Um, it was like uh, not last year, the year before. I kind of um, I did a focus on um, first day covers with Palatoy Diamond Jubilee kind of stamp marks on it for like uh, International Year of the Child. So I got a lot of three first day covers. Um, two of them I got with the stamps were in different positions. The other one is a new first day cover I've not seen before. So I'm slowly filling up my little uh, first day cover album with these uh, first day covers. I got. Uh, a panini sticker, which has a picture of the Return of the Jedi panini sticker album on it. Panini featuring panini. So I've got a little sticker with that on it, which I which I got uh, recently. I'm very pleased with this. Um, obviously, um, previous episode, I, I managed to get a big job lot of Palatoy catalogs that covered the years 1982, 83, and 84. I managed to pick up, again off eBay, a complete set of Palatoy 1981 catalogs. So I've got the 1981 catalog, so I already had that, but I've got another one. I've got the retail price list. I've got the Hobbies Division retail price list, and I've got the promotional plans. So that just leaves me um, on the main the main kind of catalogs and price lists and stuff, needing um, the promotional plans from 1978, and I think one of the price lists and, the, and for 1978 they had two printings of the price list and one of them's got july 1978 on it so i need one of those now so yes yeah, so I'm, I'm almost complete on that now mr preston put me in the direction of something that he got last uh last podcast which was the major tartan full speed with you badge and this this i mean i've, I've, I've kind of looked at this in a bit more detail it's one of six scotland world cup 1978 badges that came out and the other ones have got like um, Ali's Tartan Army on it and, and, and they're all kind of tartan themed and it's one of six. So I'm, I'm actually contemplating whether I'm going to pick up the entire set because you can get you can get the entire set of six for not much more than you can pick up the, the Star Wars one. So um, that's very nice. Um, so that, that's kind of like one of my first badges. So I may start collecting vintage badges at this point, but I'm kind of teetering on the edge at the moment. And then the other thing I got, um, I'm kind of, Filling, backfilling my collection of looking magazines. So I'm now kind of on to ones with general Star Wars content. And look, there's a set of six issues that came back to back that have, um, it's called the Star Wars Saga poster set. So each one features what, some, some, one, of, one of the main Star Wars characters. And I've got a set of six of those now. So that's six more uh, looking magazines. And then the other things I got, uh, I picked up at London Film Comic Con. So I'm going to talk about that when we speak about London Film and Comic Con a little later in the show. Right. Okay. Great items there, Jason. Um, I'm going to go over mine now because this might confuse some of you and others might go, oh, wow. So I have got the Heart of the Jedi A New Novel by Kenneth C. Flint. So if any of you know why I'm picking this out amongst all of the other novels that I have purchased recently. Why that one? Silence. Not a clue, Rich. Silence. Okay. So back in 1995, I want to say, possibly 96, I purchased a trade paperback of Dark Empire. And in the trade paperback of Dark Empire, right at the end, there was, I want to say, eight pages from memory of text from the author, um, Tom Veach, talking about um, future projects and upcoming novels. 
And in there was listed the Kevin G. Anderson trilogy series, you know, which obviously the Jedi Academy stuff that came out. But um, also was listed for Heart of the Jedi by Kenneth C. Flint. Now, what was unknown at that time was that that novel got cancelled and was never seen again, disappeared. And I remember writing in Jedi News, uh, it wasn't Jedi News, it was JediNet.com, um, a long time ago, so probably 2000, 2001, asking about this novel. And I was told it had been cancelled and uh, wasn't going to be released. Up until last year. And this was self-published on Amazon. And some copies were sold and Disney very, very quickly shut it down. And they are going for about £400 on eBay on the second-hand market. Um, so it was a novel that I was desperately wanting. So I managed to get a copy for a mighty $11. So I was absolutely delighted to pick that novel up. Um, so it's a cancelled AU novel. Um, I'm led to believe that it was cancelled because the overall story didn't fit in to where the AU uh, storyline was heading at the time. So I'm delighted to pick it up and I'm going to really enjoy reading that on holiday. Alright, let's head over to Pete. Pete, what have you picked up this month? Well, mine's short as well, Richard. Um, I, this is a bit of a weird one. Now, you, you know, I finished off my Amadala uh, 12-inch modern Phantom Menace doll collection. I found, uh, I completely forgot, that uh, there was also a um, Attack of the Clones one that they made, and it's really hard to get hold of. But there was a few female doll ones, and um, I thought oh, I never would come up. But randomly, someone had listed this on Facebook and just put Jedi Woman. Um, I thought, I've got to get it. Why not? So it's Barris Offy, which I don't know why they made that as a as a character doll. It's so obscure and so bizarre. I mean, I can't find any other on eBay. I thought, you know what, 20 quid all in. I'll have that. So I did. So uh, now I'm just after a Shaq T and uh, an Amidala in a white outfit. And uh, I've got all the female dolls, I believe. So there we go. Yeah, very unexciting there, Richard, really. Um, yeah, so... Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of unexciting, um, Andy Preston, come to you last. Let's wrap it up with the items that you've picked up this month. Thank you, Rich. Yes, unexciting to most, but uh, I, I do like my tat, so I got my my usual mixed bag this month. Starting off with a British sales brochure from 1981 for, believe it or not, the Renault 5. And within the brochure... There is a two-page spread for the Renault 5 Automatic featuring a very dodgy-looking backdrop of what I guess is supposed to be Darth Vader. It looks like a cross between Darth Vader and a Cyberman or something, flanked by stormtroopers with a spaceship flying through the air. Uh, the stormtroopers actually are, um, you know, they're genuine proper Star Wars stormtroopers, but as I say, the Vader is just bizarre. I've put this up on our uh, photos um, thread, so do... Do have a look at that. It's, it's really, really odd. Next, I have got some some plastic bottles. A Falcon Air Evac concertina bottle, um, which was used to store photographic chemicals in, and two Danish Eric Cold Plast containers. Uh, plastic containers with a screw lid. And these are not screen used, but are the same type that were used as drinking vessels in the cantina. So uh, um, some nice found objects there. The Empire Strikes Back panorama book. This is like a pop-up book, but you sort of fold out the scenes. They're three-dimensional, very good artwork. There's a couple of Hoth ones and a Dagobah one. 
this appealed to me because the book comes with punch-out figures. Um, so you can punch these figures out of card and stand them up and put them on your scenes. And uh, these are entirely unused. It was very cheap on eBay. So, yeah, I thought, I'll have that. It's an American book, not a British one, although I have seen them with British price stickers. So just about fits my collection. Next, a badge, pin badge, uh, which says, May the Force be with you in white writing on a blue background with white stars. Uh, this is a British badge, and these were given away at early preview screenings of Star Wars in the summer of 1977. You might recall a couple of episodes ago, I picked up a blue T-shirt that was also given away at early preview screenings. And apparently this badge was given away with that. So nice to add that as a an early UK cinema item. Uh, another badge, a bootleg badge this time, I believe, um, featuring the Hildebrandt artwork, um, the uh, classic painting uh, with Luke with his lightsaber held aloft and Leia with her flowing skirts at his feet and uh, the big Vader helmet in the background. And a yellow Star Wars logo off to Luke's um, right. As I say, likely to be a bootleg, but it's a very nice badge. Pick that one up off Echo Base from Tony James Holland. Thank you, Tony. A Factors sticker. Um, this one is the Brotherhood of Jedi Knights. Nice, bold, orange sticker. And that one came off Facebook from uh, Drew Illman. Also from eBay, a folder, a blue um, cardboard document wallet, which has got seven of these Factors stickers stuck on it, including a, cl- a couple that I haven't got. So uh, nice to add those as well. And inside this folder was a collection of clippings and news articles and adverts and things for... Um, Star Wars, most of them from the Jedi era onwards, uh, also Indiana Jones. I think whoever had this was a big Harrison Ford fan, so uh, um, a lot of uh, Harrison-themed cuttings there. Next one, one of the, um, well, probably the best thing that I've picked up this month, really, really delighted to add this, the Thomas Salter Action Transfers uh, display box. This is for the larger transfer sets. Um, there were two different ones released. There was a Sarlacc pit and an Ewok village one. Um, so these, as I say, are the larger transfer sets. And this is the display box featuring pictures of uh, uh, Lando and ATSTs and Leia uh, in her Boosh outfit and uh, Luke Jedi, Leia in her Ewok village dress, Imperial shuttles, Ewoks, lots and lots of lovely artwork on that. So uh, delighted with that to add to the smaller one that I got already. Came from Andrew McClacklin on Facebook. Thank you, Andrew left um, getting towards the tail end of it now a modern piece if you'll excuse me i got through the dark side alliance facebook group a digeric game set uh, apparently these are exclusive to galaxy's edge um, one of the guys on the dark side alliance had uh, got one and was selling it on fabulous set um, it's a wooden game board uh, with the classic design that you see on the millennium falcon the circular and design with concentric circles you can actually take that out of the main board flip it over and you've got a chess or a drafts game comes with representations of all the eight little monsters that r2 and chewy were playing with a lovely lovely piece really like that one and last but not least i have got myself a set of stormtrooper armor always wanted to be a trooper had this off a friend of mine who was selling up. It needs a bit of work done to it. I've got to get the undersuit and the boots and the gloves and things. It's gone a little bit yellow over time. So this one is going to be turned into a dirty sand trooper. Really looking forward to getting on with that and, getting, and trying it on. So uh, coming to an event near you sometime, the Andy Trooper. And that's my list for this month, Rich. That's fantastic. You're going to be, you're going to be a stormtrooper. All I, all I can a- say 
resist the urge to try it on now you melt <laughs> they're, yeah they're actually pretty good um in terms of costumes for this sort of weather and um, what you don't want to do is wear a stormtrooper costume in the in the cold because you will absolutely freeze great i would love i would love to have some stormtrooper armor i think that's a great great pickup but let's move over to everyone's favorite action figure face off Ah, what a, you know, every now and again you knew things like this was going to come up, so, hmm, quite a tussle here, quite a tussle. So I have Andy Preston with Paplu, Andy Spoons Norton with Squidhead, Jason with R2-D2 and the Sensor Scope, and Pete with Luke Skywalker, which I'm assuming is the original version. I'm going to come to Jason first on this one. Ooh, Jason, ooh, I want to hear how you're going to defend R2-D2 with the sensor scope. Take it away. Well, first off, let's let's hear from uh, the man himself. R2-D2, here he is. What's he, what's he saying? Rich did what? What are you saying, R2? Well, I can't repeat what he said about you there, Rich. He just won't be quiet. R2, stop it. Stop it, R2. There we go. That that was R2, basically talking about Rich there. Um, But last time I did um, R2-D2 back in the day, I was told I focused too much on what R2-D2 did in the movie. So let's focus on the figure. I can remember as a child, um, R2-D2 being one of the first figures I got, just the regular 12-back version. So he's got like his two little legs. He's got his clicky, twisty head, which I used to love. How do you improve on perfection? Well, you add a sensor scope, because uh, obviously in um, The Empire Strikes Back, there's a scene uh, when um, Luke lands in his X-Wing in um, the Yoda Swamp, and uh, R2-D2 gets swallowed or picked up by some swamp creature and get spat out, and all you can see as he's trying to get himself out of the swamp is a little sensor scope going around, and then Luke trying to guide him towards the bank. So what they did, they debuted this uh, sensor scope version on a 45, on Palatine, on a 45A, and Kenner would be a 45 back as well, and um, you could get this on all cards through 65 back and up to... Try logo and I believe Power of the Force. So, um, yes, it was a very, very popular figure and uh, lots of card variations you can get on it. The great thing about it is his little sensor scope. You, there's, no, there's no problem with lost sensor scopes because it's kind of it pops up and it won't pop out. So you don't have to worry about losing your weapon because it's kind of like it's built into the little top of his dome and it like, pops up and down. It's fantastic. And, of course, the other thing that's really great about all R2-D2 figures, uh, apart from the one with the, with the little, little leg, that drops down the middle is it's a great place for storing marbles and once you put them in you don't have to wait about 40 40 years and then post in a forum and say how do i get the marble out of my r2d2 and then lots of people post and say well that you can you can screw in a, a screw into it you super glue it's just it's, it's a real conversation starter so the figure for you is r2d2 sensor scope edition Wow, Jason, it should be hot every day because I saw the passion bursting through there. Um, let's go to Spoons of Squidhead next. Hello there, Richard. Well, I was a bit pressed for time this month, so I've actually called in a researcher 
Molly's at home at the moment, back from university. She's done a little bit of research for me. It's very interesting. She found Rebel Scum all by herself. So a bit of background. Right? We all know Squidhead is a quarren from Mon Calamari. It's called Tesek. But did you know that he was Jabba the Hutt's accountant? I didn't know that. Molly says, what's an ocean world creature doing on Tatooine? Was he brave or mad? Good point. Played by the sadly missed Gerald Home, he of new squids on the block. But we want to talk about the figure. So he was released on the 65 back as wave one of the Jedi figures. And what a figure. One of the very first Kenner figures to have two separate pieces of cloth clothing. Count them, Richard. One, two separate pieces of cloth clothing. Can you name the other figure? Can I tell me later? Loads of different colour variations of the cake, but due to the squid head's head being poppable, Jason was talking about some popping, wasn't he? Poppable, it's difficult to say which came with which figure, but I reckon the variation guys probably know. The black cape prototype on the 65 card was sadly never released, but I was uh, looking at the cards today. You can be see it on the 77 backs as well. Never knew that, but not on the 79 or Trilogas. You've got the production figure on there. He's also seen on the Jabba Palace's box image in his black cape, where you'd expect to see Jabba's accountant. The figure was way ahead of its time, and as everything, a David Beckham sarong held up by his WWF undisputed champion belt. He's got Joseph's Technicolor Dream Cape. Unlike Joseph, who had all his colours on one cape, Squid has them spread across his full wardrobe of capes. He's got a unique grey blaster. And if you do remove his soft goods, you'll see a lovely pair of natty boots and a rope belt. A double-belted figure. He really didn't want his trousers to fall down. The sculpt is excellent. Face is brilliant. I love those tentacles. As good as anything you see on a figure today. And if you turn his head upside down, add some hammerhead arms... You get Mongo Beefhead Tribesman. Two figures in one. Yes, good, good, Andy. You, you, you rescued Squidhead there quite well. Really like that double belt of trousers. <sighs> right. I'm going to be really intrigued to see how I was going to do this one, but go for it. Andy Preston, defend Paplu. I'm not even sure which Ewok that one is. Paplu. Just another Ewok, you say? Well, you'd be wrong. He's actually a bit of a star. Paplu is an Ewok scout, and according to the Jedi novel, he owns Bright Tree Village, along with his mate Tebow. He helped the rebels in the Battle of Endor, stealing a speeder bike and leading most of the biker scout guards away from the bunker on a wild chase before swinging to safety on a handy vine. He was played, of course, by Kenny Baker. His action figure is true to the movie character, a short brown bear with intricately sculpted fur, wearing a belt with a sheathed dagger, his arms out slightly from his sides like a wrestler ready for action. His gaze is menacing, lips slightly apart to show his teeth, his eyes open and watchful. His beige leather hood has got sculpted stitching and ties with white feathers at his throat and jaunty red and black feathers on his head like a Native American scout. He carries a two-pronged spear, you to this figure, ready to jab unsuspecting stormtroopers up the chaxi. Paplu and his buddy Lumat were the last of the Jedi figures released before the last 15. And yes, I did say 15. These figures belong with the 1984 second wave Jedi release, not the later Power of the Force range. These two were only ever made in Mexico. So if you own one, you can safely say you've got at least one Lily Leddy figure in your collection. He first popped up in Canada on the 77 back card, the 79 back card in the States and the Trilogo card in Europe. 
Now, when these two figures arrived in Spain, the local distributor, GMJ, formerly PBP, did not get card photo art with them. So ingeniously, they used a wicket card back, changed the text in the green lozenge to read Paplu Ewok Warrior, and ran with that until the correct card art was available. It's now an exceptionally rare card back to find. Look out for the rounded peg hole and the PBP bubble. Now, did I say the correct card art? Because, of course, Kenner still didn't get it right. Paul Paplu never appeared on his own card back. The image that they used is actually Romba, and Paplu is on the Romba card. Somehow, Kenner mixed up the reference photos and character names. And even on the back of the Trilogo card, Paplu's hidden with a black square identified only by the writing Paplu action figure. There you are, Rich, unjustly treated by Kenner, but he cannot Paplu's this month. Again, just as as good as Andy there, a lot of thorough research in that one. Pete, are you going to really take it that Paplu cannot lose, take it away with everyone's favourite Luke Skywalker? There's no thorough research here, Richard. Right, Luke Skywalker, we know him as Luke Farnboy. I never called him Luke Farnboy, didn't know that term existed. And I do believe, I do believe, we'll be corrected, obviously, uh, because I'm not doing research, that um, that the Farnboy first appeared on the coin, on that that Power of the Force coin, calling him Farnboy, but I'm sure someone will correct me. But anyway, there we have the figure. Um, a little boy wearing sandy trousers and puttees, a shiny, daz-washed, fresh white tunic and utility bat with what looked to be his macro binoculars on his right hip. Relive the scenes of him getting floored by a friendly local feral Tuscan just trying to show off his newly constructed gaffy stick. Reenact Luke building the jab on fire, indeed getting slapped around by Bardensians. It's an action figure with plenty of action possibility. Our Star Wars hero has several main features. Collectors getting a tiz over. One, the hair colour. If we were mostly female collectors, we would love the choice of colour that we could get. Blonde, lemon blonde, dirty blonde, orange, light brown and chocolate brown. Moss Eisley hair colouring salons had a field day with this guy. Two, the whole lightsaber thing. The double telescopic lightsaber, Richard loves that. Aside from owning something really expensive, it's just something so fragile, it'll probably just drop off during the next heat wave. And no, the regulation one with the withered end, it doesn't even look that bad if the end actually falls off. It still looks good. And we mustn't forget the colour of the trousers. Several variations here. And for play value, you can again reenact a variety of unseen adventures. Freshly washed trousers, not being washed after a good old shindig anchor head, falling off speeders into the jungle and wastes, or indeed getting jiggy with Kustark behind Fixer's back, and all those types of things. Luke Skywalker farm boy, the ultimate Luke Skywalker. Well, they've all been brilliant this month, I've got to say. It's been one of the best months and the hardest to judge for a long, long time. I loved, I really did, really enjoy Andy Spoons' uh, Squidhead rundown. There were some brilliant things in there, and I like the fact that he pulled a new researcher onto his team to help him out in that one. Andy Preston, he obviously did really well with Paplu. Um, I now know which figure it is amongst all the just the other Ewoks, as you put. Um, Pete's defence of Luke Skywalker, well, he didn't really need to defend it. He could have just been silent for a full minute and done really well, because that is a great action figure. But I'm going to have to go with Jason Smith this month. I think Jason's really bought into the spirit, finally. Um, so for only second victory ever, thoroughly deserved Jason Smith or two sensor scope. Thank you very much, Rich. Is he going to get, get pop-up lightsaber as well, so we can bring R2 back? <laughs> as, long, as long as I don't get Lobot, I don't mind. 
<laughs> it's your destiny, Jason. No! No! I wonder if there's a 12-inch Lobot somewhere. Mm-hmm. I doubt it. I doubt it. It must be somewhere, Richard. It must be. Well, Pete, in that you're chuntering away there, do you want to take us in this month's quiz? Oh, I do indeed, Richard. I do indeed. And it's all about heat. Heat? heat? It's all about the heat. But it's Star Wars. Well, I say Star Wars heat. It's kind of Star Wars heat. I've split you two up into two teams. Um, I put Richard and Spoons into one team and Jason and Preston into the other team. Now, for team names, I put you both into uh, uh, Anagram Maker. And Richard and Spoons, I've used your names, and that's come up with Hard Scorpions. What a great name mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, you thought good. Yeah, yeah I'll take that. Jason Smith, Andy Preston, I put you in, and we didn't get anything great, but the best I saw was Adamson Johnny Spitters, which I yeah. thought was very good. Johnny so, I, I like that. Adamson Johnny, that's almost like a hard rock band. It's a bit like Glasgow, um, the Glasgow Kiss, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it can be interpreted several different ways. The the worst way is quite hideously That's rancid. funny, because Andy Preston can be interpreted several different ways. <laughs> Indeed. Right, <laughs> so... Often is. So I have come up with a heat-related quiz, um, and uh, it shouldn't be too bad. There's not that many questions. So we'll have a few a few kind of, like, back and forths. And you can confer, and you can hand it over. If you mess around, I'm going to take points off you, and I'm just going kind to of give random points at random well, if I feel... Naughty. Right, the, the theme of the quiz, everybody, is Death Valley. So, Death Valley has a big Star Wars relationship, and also a very hot relationship. Rich and Spoons, do you want to go first or second, Hard Scorpions? I'll go first, but, you know, we want to okay. end up first, so we'll go first. Question one. Now, I want accuracy here. I'll give you uh, a degree either way. Because I'm that. Because this should, you should know this. It's been out um, all day. So, boys, what is the record temperature recorded at Furnace Creek on July 10th, 1913, in Death Valley? So, world record temperature. Well, think how hot it's been at the moment. Yeah. Um, ramp it up a bit. Has it peaked 50 degrees, Andy? I don't know. Would there, is it in Fahrenheit or Celsius? Actually, Pete, do you have do you have the answer I'm, in both? I'm going to say, well, let's go with Celsius because we are British. Okay. Yeah, okay. It's going to be it's going to be 49 or even 50. I, I think yeah. we may have peaked 50 at some point. So do we go 50, 51, or 52? It's going to be in there, isn't it? Remember the hottest ever in the world temperature since recorded has begun. I go. Let's go for your 52, Richard. Right. Okay. We'll go 52 degrees, Pete. You're incorrect, sadly. Not a million miles away, but you are incorrect. Boys, do you want? I'm going to hand it over. The Adamson Johnny Spitters. I did pre-prepare some answers without knowing what the quiz questions was, (laughs) and pre-prepared answer number one was hot. Well, uh, Andy, I think we should have a guess at a number rather than just... Yeah, that would be a good guess. A number would be good. Well, coming from Bonnie Scotland, Jason's hottest uh, temperature that he's aware of is about 20. So uh, I think the the boys have gone too low. I think 55... I was thinking more 57 or 58. 57. Should we split the difference? 56? 56. 56, yeah. Well, the, the world's highest temperature was 134 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 57 degrees. So you you have got that point. Yes. I said one either way. That is hot. That is hot. Yes. Nice one. Have you ever been to Death Valley, either of you lot? Anyone? No. Mm, too hot no. for me. I have been to Death Valley. I got out once when it was very hot. It was just under 50. I walked around a bit. And it was just like, yeah, 
on getting back in the car before the car explodes. Brilliant time of death, but he's been there a couple of times, loved it. Right, anyway, question two to the Adamson Johnny Spitters. During that same year, another record temperature was recorded at Greenland Ranch in Death Valley. But what was it and why was it significant? So in the same year, 1913. Uh, again, my pre-prepared answer before I seen any questions here was chuffing warm, but I think we should probably come up with a number again. A number would be good. Oh, well, it's not going to be the coldest place, is it? Because there's lots of places colder than that. When it's nighttime, the d- desert gets really, really cold. It does, but it's not going to be as cold as, like, Antarctica or somewhere, is it? I wouldn't have thought. It was a record for Death Valley. What was it? A record, a record for Death Valley. A record for Death Valley. Uh, Greenland Ranch. What was it? In which case, Jason, I think you're on the right lines. I think, yeah, it's, a, I think, I think could, it's a record you can, low. You can freeze to death in the in the desert. So I, I would say it's going to be minus something. Now, I've, I've in Scotland, uh, at Hogmanay, when I was about 16 or 17, I walked home in a light shirt and I had an awful lot to drink and it was... I felt really, really cold, and I was really laboring my breath, and I thought, maybe I'll stop for a rest. I didn't, and it turned out um, that the, the next day they said it had got down to minus 23, and that's up in the Highlands in Scotland. So in Death Valley, which is famous for having its cold nights, how, how cold do you reckon it could have got? Ooh, I don't think it – I can't. Can't see it being that cold. I mean, I'm thinking back to Fincer. Um, I'm not. Remember, I'm not after a temperature. I'm just after uh, what was it and why was it significant? Oh well, lowest temperature recorded, and it was significant because what surprised them all. <laughs> so you go for the lowest temperature, <laughs> Jason. Well, with that, lowest temperature. I don't know why that would be significant then, but. Okay, well, you're correct, yeah, the lowest temperature. So in the same year, they had the highest ever temperature recorded on the planet, and also they had their own lowest temperature, which is minus nine. Well, there you go. How crazy is that? So, you know, <laughs> that, I thought it's very significant to have the highest What's and the lowest. It doesn't get very rarely drops below any uh, decent temperature, to be fair, Jason, in Death Valley. You want to look at the yearly temperatures. It's quite insane. So, wow, another point for the Adamson Johnny Spitters. Right, back to hard scorpions. This is dead easy. Which creature, less than two foot tall, is the most common creature in Death Valley? Seemingly some some kind of lizard, Richard. You'd assume so, but less than two foot tall. It made two feet lizards. A snake? I mean, less than two I'll foot I'll give you a little clue. It's very famous. Oh, is it not the roadrunner? Me, me. Yeah, or the coyote. Okay, if it's less than two foot... Lizards and snakes and scorpions are all... You wouldn't say less than two foot, would you? You'd say less than two inches. Yeah, exactly. Roadrunners, they're like chickens, aren't they? Desert yeah. chickens. Is that your answer? Yes. It's correct. They are less than two feet tall and weighing about one pound. So you've got yourselves a point, the hard scorpions. I thought they just existed in ones. Yeah, there's millions of them. We are back to our favourite team, Adamson Johnny Spitters. Now, you're going to fill in the blank here. It should be pretty easy. Death Valley is the blank point in North America. Death Valley is the blank point in North America. Well, what my, is that missing word? My uh, my pre-prepared answer was Fahrenheit 451, which I don't believe is going to be correct. So let's go with something else then. 
And lowest, the absolute... thinking lowest. Lowest? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't think it's going to be another temperature-related one. So, yeah, let's go with lowest. Lowest is indeed correct. Well done. Yeah, it is the lowest. I've got some uh, got a fact here. It's 282 feet below sea level. Another point for the spitters. Now, the hard scorpions. Who holds the best round at the Devil's Golf Course? Devil's Golf Course is a place in Death Valley. No idea, Richard. Tiger Woods, possibly. He's going to be up there somewhere, isn't he? Is this like some kind of joke question? <laughs> Someone like Trump is, is cheating. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no idea. Um, I assume the devil. But, uh, yeah, it could be a Star Wars question, and it could be... <laughs> Not just as much golf and Star Wars there. Yeah, but it could be. There could have been the actors when they were chilling out at a round of golf. Um, I'm, we'll go with Tiger Woods. You go with Tiger Woods? Incorrect. The other guys, do you want to go on this one? Well, my pre-prepared answer was Inferno, which I think might be a nickname for Seve Ballesteros. But Andy Preston, do you have any better suggestions than the ultimate golfer, Seve Ballesteros? I'm thinking it's probably an American. Um, somebody a bit wild. Um, what about John Daly? Sounds good to me. Let's go with that. Well, you're both wrong, but Andy Spoons, you did. You were so close. You were so close. It is a complete trick question. Devil's Golf Course isn't meant for golfing. It's got its name because only the devil could play golf on its surface. It's a colourful landscape worn by wind and rain into beautiful jagged spires. Yeah, it's a it's a real it's a real barren landscape. <laughs> I, I, I still I still think Savvy would have made par on it. But I am going to give I'm going to give you one because you did get it. But you talk yourself out of it because you're a sausage. So I'm going to give you one just to get the scores going. So Hard Scorpion's giving you a point there. <laughs> Very I, kind. I feel sorry because you did get it. I was thinking, oh, don't talk yourself out. You got it, 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 you got it. You got it, you got it. I mean, no one's going to play golf in Death Valley. I mean, crying. Well, I just, yeah, thinking about that afterwards. It's a barren <laughs> death state. Maybe they play a night, but it's minus nine. <laughs> yes. Uh, right. Um, uh, we are Johnny Spitters in, uh, in question seven. Coming from Vallejo, California, this Star Wars character claimed a temporary home at the inn at Oasis Gardens. Who was it? Well, Come I'm out of pre-prepared answers at this point. Oh, yeah, bad luck to you. Margie the Elephant. Well done, Mr. Yes. <laughs> it was indeed. Uh, Margie the a- Asian Elephant claimed a temporary home at the Oasis Gardens at the inn. She played the role of a banther. The film was pack animal, decked out the horns, and a woolly mane for the past. Margie came from the animal park in California. So, yeah, well done. Good Death Valleying there. Approximately how many square miles does Death Valley cover? Remember, it's a national park, mm. so it's not going to be gone forever. And I'll, yeah, if you get somewhere near, I'll give it to you. I didn't realise this was a, a geography quiz. Yeah. There we go. So when you go and visit the Star Wars sites, which we'll come to in a minute, you can get an idea of uh, Death Valley, when not to burn to death, when not to uh, go and play golf on the uh, non-golf course. And, um, yeah, you should be all right. So it's good, good knowledge for you. But how big is it? Two miles across... What do, you, what do you reckon, Richard? 10 miles long? I'd have no idea. I think 20 miles? 50? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stop there. It's much bigger than that. Yeah, I'm taking it close, like the uh, six, 700, to be honest with you. It's huge. I'm going to give you that as a tip. It's huge. Mm. It's, a, it's a national park. Mm. National Can parks are not two miles across. Um, <laughs> I've, no idea. I've no idea. <laughs> A half a million square miles. <laughs> well, that's no, just silly now. That's just silly. That that's just ridiculous. Um, I'm gonna. <laughs> we're gonna go with. 
1,200. Oh, you're a little bit far out. Um, other boys, you want a quick guess at this? I would say more like 2,000. Yeah. Happy with that? Yeah, still yeah. a little bit too out. I think if you got within 500 games, it's 3,000 square miles. 3,000 square. It is a big place, Andy. Big place. So no points to anyone there. Okay, Ryan, the final question for the Johnny Spitters. Right now, this uh, this is an absolute corker. If you get this, I might give you two points or mm-hmm. just take them off of being cocky. Just depends how I feel at the time. So which main Star Wars actor had an uncredited role in the 1970 film Zabriskie Point? Now, Zabriskie Point is named after a Death Valley tourist attraction or a location and had several scenes filmed in the location. So I was quite surprised. I thought, oh, interesting. Interesting. Is this someone who was in A New Hope or just in any... Which main Star Wars actor? I'll okay. tell you what, it's not Cassian Andor. And we're talking vintage, okay? Okay. So not third guy along on the Stormtrooper ranks. I'm talking main Star Wars actor. Main actor. It's likely to be an American, I would say, Jason. Do you, do you think? Or? It's not Harrison oh, what, Ford. When did you say the date was, Pete? 1970. Should 70, give you a 70. clue. Oh, would it be someone who's a bit older? Would it have been someone like Alec Guinness, maybe? Possibly. Because he um, been acting then. All the others would not have been acting at that point. Harrison Ford might have been. I think Harrison Ford was. Remember but I said uncredited de- role. Definitely uh, wouldn't have been Hamill or Fisher because they'd have been too young. Mm-hmm. I'm, so tempted to, I'm, I'm tempted to say Harrison Ford because he did a lot of small roles in these sort of small, just sort of walk on. Okay, parts. let's go with that then. Yeah. Yeah, correct. Harrison Ford it was. Ah. He apparently played a protester in uh, a local um, town uh, in, in the film. It's, but yeah, it's a brisky point is a place you can go and visit at Death Valley. So, well, I think you've got another point now. I think, uh, I think you have an unassailable lead, but we don't care because it's all about education. Rather than winning silly quizzes. Right now, these next four questions are multiple choice, and they're going to help you uh, find locations for Star Wars when you go and visit Death Valley next year when it gets too cold. Right, so we are back to the Hard Scorpions filming location of the 1977 film Star Wars as a character's overlooked with fictional Tatooine spaceport of Mos Eisley, which was added into the scene as a map painting. So that viewpoint is a Dante's view, b Rainbow Canyon, C, Stovepipe Wells, or D, Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes. All places in Death Valley, have a think. What do you think, Richard? Well, it's between the Dante's one and the Mesquite one, so I'll let you choose the answer. I think I'm going to go for Dante's. Brilliant, well done. That's a point for you guys. Well done. What, a, what an amazing guest there. Uh, probably done on expertise. The Johnny Spitters. A spot was used for the shot of R2-D2 crossing the Dune Sea towards some mountains on the way to find Ben Kenobi. Was it A, Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes, B, Artist Palette, C, Zabriskie Point, or D, 20 Mule Team Canyon? It's a guess, Jason, but the last one, 20 I was thinking Mule that. Canyon. I was thinking that. That very vaguely rings a bell, but I, it's a guess. Um, It's incorrect. Oh, no! Other guys, you want to give it a go? So in Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes, Artist Palette, Zabriskie Point, or, well, you can't have 20 mil team, can you? Because they've already got that wrong. So A to C. Give us our options again. Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes, Artist Palette, Zabriskie Point. 
was tempted by Mesquite last time. Yeah, we'll go with that one. Should we go for that one? Well done, you got it right. So you have now drawn level. Five fours, five four. It's five four. We're talking Star Wars now rather than geography. Oh, indeed. Right, so we are back to the hard scorpions. The only shot for Return of the Jedi where R2-D2 and C-3PO go to Jabba's palace, so the only shot for this film, was filmed in A, Mesquite Flat Sand Dunes, B, Devil's Golf Course, C, Stovepipe Wells, or D, the canyon nicknamed 20 Mule Team Canyon. That's a quite epic name, that is. I, I like the 20, 20 Mule Team. Yeah, I can't see it being Devil's Golf Course. We'll go with that 20 Mule Canyon or whatever it is. Oh, correct. You've now drawn level. So the boys have to get this question right. Okay, if, and if they get it wrong, you boys can steal it. Five points all. Right, so are you, are you prepared, uh, Johnny Spitters? We are. Sure, I don't want you messing up. Right. Now, it's a little bit of cheek, a question, obviously, for the last one. A panoramic view from where was digitally enhanced to become the shot of Arvala 7 as the Razor Crest comes in for a landing in the first episode of The Mandalorian? Which Death Valley location? A. Zabriskie Point. B. Badwater Basin. C. Stovepipe Wells. Or D. Artist Palette. These are all genuine Death Valley places. I haven't made them up. Well, it could be any of those. What do you think? He keeps mentioning Artist's Palette and <laughs> Stovepipe Wells, doesn't he? So I'm tempted to think it's one of those. He's trying to do his spoons and get into my psyche of question creation. I am. I'm looking at our Skype session. It's saying AP for Artist Palace there. Oh. It's staring <laughs> face, AP. <laughs> AP. Good. Good a reason as any, Jason. Yes. Is, is that what you're going for? Yes. You got it wrong. Right, boys, you can steal the whole quiz here. It's some comeback if you do. So, A, Zabriskie Point, B, Badwater Basin, C, Stovepipe Wells, and they've said Artist Palette, which, of course... Well, um, it being in your psyche, Pete, yes. we, we do keep hearing the others, but then there's the odd new one, which I'm, I'm flumping for. So the Badwater Basin would be yeah, my Yeah, the basin. Uh, you're both incorrect. Oh. <laughs> Badwater Basin, I thought I thought Andy would be on top of me here trying to second guess what I've, what I've guessed. And uh, no, it is sadly, it was a brisky point. Oh, I gave it away. So you finished on five all. And that's why I'm going to leave it because it's too hot to do a tiebreaker. So you both won. You're both winners. And we've learned lots about Death Valley. We, su- we survived Death Canyon. <laughs> I was quite surprised how much it was in Death Valley, which I'd been to, but didn't realise it was Star Wars when I was there because I went years and years ago. I went, oh, no. The Dante's View... It's a cracking place, so you have to get there early in the morning. So remember, we stayed, we were doing a road trip. So we stayed at a hotel. The nearest hotel is about 60 miles away. So we had to get up at like 2 in the morning, drive a ridiculous distance in, the, well, complete dark. And when you get there, because there's salt flats, basically, so it's, when the sun hits the salt, it basically makes all these different colours. So it's really quite trippy and, and beautiful at the same time. Some of it looks metallic some of it looks shiny some of it looks blue some of it looks green it is absolutely phenomenal look to the morning but you've got to get there before the sunrise otherwise you don't see it and at night if the moon is out nice and strong it looks really shiny and white it's really it's, it's an amazing place i didn't realize they'd filmed anything there but it, it's yeah it's a stunning stunning place i definitely recommend going there one day if you get a chance sounds good and full of star wars stuff so that's me done richard it's really sweet. okay great quiz that's something different pete 
Okay then, so let's get the introduction wrapped up with any shout out. So we'll move on to Spoons first. And Spoons, you've, uh, you like dipping into stores from UK. So what have you spotted? Yeah, so as I said before, there's certainly nowhere near the uh, the level of purchases that there, there used to be. In fact, I'm only one, it was last month I was last looking there and I'm only one page on. That's actually been some really nice uh, pickups. It was a hard choice this month. In a way, DB94 came close, but as uh, as featured him last month, I've gone for something that I would very much like to own myself. A man of little words, Star Wars fan, he says, finally managed to get one. Didn't say any more. And then there's five pictures of the Power of the Force tri-logo Hoth Rescue playset. Uh, and it's it's a great set. I don't even know if he's got anything in it. He's just showing the boxes uh, with the box sides. Uh, but this would come with Luke Skywalker in Hoth gear, Han Solo in Hoth gear, a Torn Torn and a Hoth Wampa. It would come with uh, cardboard inserts and instructions, hard to find instructions, as Andy said, I think, the other month. But really, really rare piece, uh, rocketed in value over recent years, these things. I would certainly love one in, in my collection. And... Well done, Star Wars fan, for finding one after who knows how long, but he's finally found one, so congratulations. Yeah, nice item. I didn't realise those were as rare as what you put there, but yeah, good shout. Right, I'm moving over to my next, just because you went for him, and I went for him as well, but I went to Rebel Scum. And what I found on Rebel Scum was posted by by Mike Sidious um, in Australia. And Mike's posted, picked up this lot the other week, Seller was cool enough to include also a New Zealand 21 back R2 card as well. Not a bad deal for $50. So I had a look at the items that he had there and I'm going to come back to that card back and perhaps have a question for Jason. So what he has is he has a action figure case, the blue one, which holds 24 stores action figures, including an insert. Um, it looks quite tired, although the case looks, um, you know, really nice inside the insert definitely looks a bit tired but inside the case along with um, the action figures in there is a dt look and the look saber looks very worn and the, the the tip looks incredibly stretched and pulled end of the saber's possibly missing a tiny bit it's hard to tell but it's a you know a great shout for fifty dollars you know for all those action figures, the case, the insert, and uh, DT Luke. But Jason, I want to come to you on this New Zealand card back then. So it's a 21 back R2. And looking at the front of it, there's nothing on there at all about New Zealand. Um, you've got the Kenner logo. Um, you've got um, 20th Century Fox. Everything looks pretty standard on the front. You go to the back and you've got, you know, collect all 21 action figures. Um, looking out for all these exciting toys. You've got Kenner Products Cincinnati, Ohio on the back of it. Uh, looking at it on the offset there, there's absolutely nothing to tell you that this is a New Zealand card back. Um, so I've done a tiny bit of research on the New Zealand card backs um, and, and learned a few things. I don't know if you know off the top of your head how you tell a, a New Zealand 21 back from a standard Kenner card. It's the it's the it's the length of the card. Um, mm-hmm. There are a couple of card backs which are significantly shorter and longer than the standard counter card back, and this is the, one of the ones you can tell by just by the, the the height of the card. 
Well, according to this website at the moment, which is swnz.co.nz, they are shorter and they're also uh, narrower. So there is a notable size difference. So this website says New Zealand made 21 back card backs are visibly shorter than their US counterparts. They're also printed on a cardstock that is noticeably less glossy on the back, resulting in muted colours and less quality photos. The white of the chrome race track border on the rear of the card in particular has quite a dirty tint. All of the card backs are equivalent to the US 21B, um, which features picks in the lower third of Land of the Jaws playset, Patrol Joe Back, Droid Factory, Creature Cantina, and the action figure collector's case. Um, and then there's a photograph of the card, um, much lower, much smaller than the Kenner one, which was underneath. So these cards are a little harder to spot at first glance. There were other clues all relating to the clear plastic figure bubbles, which had squared off pyramidal shapes and had an extension piece at the top or a header extension, unlike the rest of the world's bubble that had the extension piece at the bottom, also known as the footer. The punch tab also is slightly left shifted um, on the front, which is right shifted when you're looking at the back. Slightly different shape and size. Anybody who's interested in these card backs, it goes into um, Star Wars Transitional 21 backs and all sorts of good information, which I've never seen on there. So at one point, I'm going to go through this website. It seems to be the New Zealand version of the Palatine Matrix. That's Star Wars New Zealand, swnz.co.nz. But regardless, it seems to me like a cracking deal for just $50. So Jason, I'm guessing you've finished sucking on your lolly now. Um, what have you picked up? Well, before we go to Jason, Richard, can we just can we just give a shout out to Rebelscum? I know there was a lot lot of controversy a few years ago about the photo hosting on there, but the photo feature is absolutely fantastic on that thread. I've not been on for a while, so just clicking clicking on the photos. I think that Mike Sidious has got some great images on anyway. They're good good clear ones, but you click click on those and they enlarge massively. And even some of the other guys' smaller photos, you can really zoom in. When you click on them, yeah, so shout out to Rebel Scum. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's a shame it's all too late, isn't it? But let's move on over to Jason then. So, Jason, what have you spotted this month? Well, it's a, it's a rare shout out from my own uh, original Facebook group, Vintage Star Wars Action Figures, which normally just features pictures of um, attic finds that clearly aren't attic finds or, you know, people picking up. Blue Snaggletooth for ten dollars, which seems to happen every other every other post at the moment. But this 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 post came from a, a chap called Oscar Gavidia Moreno, and he says, "Not for sale." Hi, folks. I have some Star Wars vintage cards, brackets Kenner. Do you know if they have any market value? Some cards below, and the first the first card featured. It's only a Golden Grail card back. Everybody going, what, what's a Golden Grail? If you want to know what a Golden Grail is, you have to go to uh, Bill Cable's uh, website. He's the big C-3PO collector. And basically, up until a couple of years ago, nobody had seen a special offer Star Wars Display Arena C-3PO removable limbs card. Uh, and then one came up, which uh, Bill Cable obviously managed to, to get as a, a mint on card. And it turned out some, some guy um, in, in Asia... Had a found that there's a small find of these things, so there was like half a dozen of these things came out. But this is a this is a card back, which shows that obviously one of these was sold back in the day and opened. So I, I'd, I'd never seen a card back before. So well done, Oscar. Where have you got that from? Absolutely, I remember those card backs well with the the X on the bubble. So yeah, good spot there, Jason. Um, Andy Preston, I'll come over to you next. 
Thank you, Rich. Yeah, this is something I saw on Collecting Star Wars Beyond the Toys on Facebook. And this is something from this month's uh, interview guest, Marion Nike. Uh, he says, uh, I recently picked up a set of six vintage Star Wars unlicensed bootleg small clocks manufactured by Slava in USSR and sold in Mexico, featuring quirky character artwork such as Yoda pointing, Luke and Vader dancing and C-3PO puckering up for a kiss, not for sale. Now, have you guys seen the artwork on these? I think these are absolutely fantastic. Six in the set that he's got. I think he's actually picked up more than six because there seem to be a couple of duplicates here, but uh, six different clock faces. So uh, these are all sort of square clocks with rounded corners and there's a little character graphic in the middle. So you've got one with Darth Vader's helmet um, with it almost looks like he's got a clown nose because the second sweep hand is, uh, has got a red disc at the end of it, which sits right in the middle of Vader's face. So that's uh, uh, interesting positioning. Second one, we have Boba Fett um, with his blaster and the second Death Star from Return of the Jedi in the background. The third one, now this is the one that Narayan calls Vader and Luke dancing, and they yeah, they don't look like they're dueling with lightsabers at all. They look like they're uh, dancing around the Maypole or doing country dancing or Morris Men or something. That is just a brilliant image. Uh, next one, you've got a rather dodgy looking Stormtrooper, again with a red nose. You've also got uh, a lovely one with the Death Star in the background in the top left corner. And in the bottom right, you've got Yoda, who is bright red. He's got a big, goofy grin on his face, and he's pointing at something. I dread to know what he's pointing at, but the worst depiction of Yoda I think I've ever seen. And then the last one is the two droids. You've got R2-D2 and C-3PO. And again, C-3PO, what on earth is he doing? Uh, Had this artist ever seen C-3PO? Had he ever understood about the character? For a start, he's bright red. And uh, yeah, again, I think Narayan's hit the nail on the head. He looks like he's puckering up for a kiss with somebody. Uh, I know we've seen uh, behind-the-scenes photographs of Carrie giving C-3PO a good smooch, so uh, perhaps she's there just out of shot. Who knows? Uh, each of these is also labelled on the clock face La Guerra de las Galaxias, um, classic Spanish-Mexican logo, and these are just brilliant. They come in blue, orange, yellow and white uh, and black casings, and they're fantastic. Never seen or heard of these before, but a great pickup. Well done, Narayan. Absolutely. And Pete, can you top Narayan's uh, small clocks? <laughs> Nothing tops a red Yoda. Nothing. There's not anything I can do that can top a red Yoda. I mean, he looks really cheeky. Really cheeky. But, uh, yeah, that is. So, uh, right. Now, Andy said he wasn't going to feature DB94, but I have decided to feature DB94 because of his story. So he has um, his 50th birthday today. This was back on July the 2nd. Uh, I finally got my boxed, unused, sealed bag, absolutely minty, gorgeous piece of vintage childhood, nostalgic, magic Millennium Falcon. Try saying that when you're drunk. It's been sitting hidden away in a wardrobe for over eight years, waiting for today. Wow, it was worth the wait. Last time I had this feeling was Christmas morning, 1980. Also got this beautiful R2, uh, which is a... um, uh, the big one, the 12-inchy one. Love this toy back in the day. Some comics and a lightsaber prop, which is a, a corker. But 
the question was, he's got it. He's had it in a wardrobe for eight years. So um, there, there was there's a further story. Now, first off, the Manning Falcon, it's just to show what it looks like, obviously. Uh, it's a Palatoy box one. It is the box is in good condition, um, good enough condition anyway. Um, it's also been opened before. The Millennium Falcon is utterly mint inside. The stickers have not been used. The sticker sheet is still there. All the props and bits and bobs are in a plastic bag thing. And the instructions are there. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. But a little bit of sadness in me that this is never going to get made up. It's just going to sit there as this. So it's a, it's a little bit of sadness. But we say, why eight years? Eight years. I mean, I couldn't keep anything in a covered lab for eight years. But apparently the story was it was originally going to be a 25th wedding anniversary present from his wife. At the last minute, she got him something else. So it was decided it would make a fantastic 50th or retirement present. I even labelled the shelf it was on in the wardrobe, Docking Bay 94. What a great story. But I'll I tell you what, I couldn't have that and not be looking at it every day. I'd go mad. And great items there, everybody. Such an eclectic mix of things that I found this month. And it's really pleasing to see that people are still buying Star Wars. It's still appearing. It's still trading. And, uh, you know, certainly no signs of it stopping. So, great introduction, guys. I think uh, covered a lot of content there. But I think it's time to head over to Rebel Briefings. Southampton Comic Con. Unclowing, I think these images might have been stolen. Tickets, please. Or should it be tickets displeased? London Calling. Brian's Toys in a book. The Rebel base is on a moon on the far side. We are preparing to orbit the planet. So, Southampton Comic Con. I saw this. This, this looked really dodgy. Are we allowed to say anything or will we go to prison? Well, all we're doing is reporting on what we've read online, so we're not going to name any event organiser. Um, we're just going to pick up on some of the stories that have been released. But we'll start off with the positive first because Jason did go to Southampton Comic Con. So Jason, can you tell me about that experience and what was Southampton Comic Con? It was a con that was on last weekend. It was hot on the tails of London Film and Comic Con. It was at an, uh, an event arena called uh, the Aegeus Ball, which is a big uh, cricket club, bringing up cricket yet again. And um, first time they'd uh, had a con there, and first time they'd been hosted um, uh, this particular con called Southampton Comic Con. It was a two-day con on paper. It looked quite good. Um, there was a big... Back to the Future um, kind of event. So there was like lots of Back to the Future guests there and there were various increasing levels of tickets and money that you could pay to get, um, you know, a kind of diamond pass experience with all of these guests. The Saturday came to be sold out um, when I tried to buy a ticket a few days before the con was due to start. It said tickets would be, few tickets would be available on the door. But when you went on the website, the 
you could still buy tickets, even despite the fact it was sold, quote, sold out. So anyway, I turned up on the Sunday, uh, principally to um, meet some cosplay friends I've got in Southampton. And the thing is, it, it was really quiet because like, the big day for any con is on a Saturday. And some days are particularly quiet. I think it suffered from the fact that uh, the amount of people turned up on the Sunday was because it, the, the Back to the Future event came hot on the heels of a very similar kind of offering from London Film and Comic Con the weekend before. It wasn't that particularly an accessible venue. You really need to travel there by car. And a lot of con goers are young people who don't have cars. So that, that was a bit of an issue. I mean, the other issue was um, it was incredibly hot. So we're in the middle of the city. It was incredibly hot. So a lot of people didn't turn up because it was incredibly hot. So it was just very, very small Footfall. I had a great time. I was there to meet my mates, um, so we went round the con, saw some of the guests. I had a nice five-minute chat with Bob Gale. Now, if you'd been at London Film and Comic Con, you, you wouldn't be able to get a five-minute chat with anyone. So it was a very nice chat with Bob Gale, who uh, obviously produced uh, the Back to the Future movies and the, the wonderful music that you can see, uh, see at the Delphi Theatre uh, at the moment. And if you haven't been, please get a ticket to that because it's fantastic. So, I mean, the thing kind of started petering. It was meant to kind of carry on till five o'clock, and it kind of petered out around about half three. Some people started packing up. We'd seen everything we wanted to go, so we went on our way. And um, as far you know, as far as I could see at that point, everything was fine. It was just another quiet con. It was a new con. Sundays are always quiet. But um, obviously, when I got back, um, the various Facebooks, Facebook posts started appearing, and uh, there was a bit of controversy. So... Did, did somebody else want to cover that? And then I'll come back to what I think kind of happened at the end of it. Yeah, but Jason, can you just clarify, um, what was the weather like there? Uh, extremely hot. <laughs> extremely hot. I mean, it was obviously one of the hottest days of the year. So, yes, extremely hot. Yeah, just because you said incredibly hot about 14 times in the same sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Very warm. So, yeah. So, you're right there. So, over on Facebook, the first signs that anything wasn't quite right was a post at Comic-Con at West Key's Facebook group. And the post was made, it's always a sad moment when statements such as these have to be made public. All the cool stuff at Fence Limited and it shows Comic-Con West Key, Rollout Rock Hall, UK Transformers, G.I. Joe and Action Force, Twins of Power, UK He-Man, Marvel Universe and she and Fathers from the UK Star Wars Retro Toy Show are in no way connected to Wayne Streak or his current trading entity, Hampshire Toy Fairs. Mr. Streak did assist in the events that are owned and operated by All The Cool Stuff Event Limited and fundraising for Click Sergeant and the Piam Brown Ward of Southampton General, but his association with these events terminated in December 2016. Since December 2016, Mr. Streak has had no ties to any event owned and operated by All The Cool Stuff Events Limited. We are deeply sorry to hear of events that have transpired this weekend. We hope any issues connected to Hampshire Toy Fair gets resolved in a timely manner. So that was the, the clue there, that something wasn't quite right. Um, so Jason, you've alluded to there. Well, what do you think wasn't quite right? What happened? Well, essentially, um, obviously, the, the con hasn't done nearly as well as it was hoped that they, they were, they were going to do. They've got, you know, not as big a guest as they have at LFCC, but they've got big American guests who obviously demand a certain amount of money to come over and, you know, hotel accommodation, all the rest of it. And they've just not made nearly enough ticket sales and they, they've not sold nearly enough 
of their, you know, their, their, you know, their experienced passes. They, you know, the most expensive pass that they had on there was a uh, seven hundred pound, you know, VIP, you know, experience pass for Back to the Future, and that got you two days in a local hotel. I think it was the Hilton, and then it got you, you know, an autograph and signature with everyone to do with Back to the Future. There, it got you a cinema screening on the Friday night. All these other things that came up, you know, that came along with the ticket. I know one of the ticket holders, you know, one of the ticket holders of one of my uh, Back to the Future kind of cosplay group. The other guy um, is an autistic child who was there with his mom. So I'm kind of, you know, really kind of sad he, he was the other ticket holder because um, basically a lot, you know, half the stuff that it was on this ticket, it never transpired. So on the Friday night, um, there was no screen, cinema screening show because the cinema said, well, there's only two tickets sold. We can't stick the, the cinema screening on. So that, that never happened. And then it seems that, you know, there were problems with it before even started so a lot of the guests some of the guests cancelled because they they had kind of travel costs and hotel costs which weren't paid up front so some of the guests cancelled before the con even started and some of the other other guests cancelled after the saturday because again their hotel hadn't been paid or their travel hadn't been paid or whatever hadn't been paid so some of them kind of folded up and packed up and then um on the sunday the event organisers disappeared early afternoon with whatever cash takings had been taken on the day. And that's basically cash on the door. They were doing cash on the door for tickets. And rather than paying the get paying the guest for your autograph or photograph, you had to go to the organiser desk where you paid them the money. And then you got a raffle ticket, which you then gave to the guest. So the guests weren't taking any money at this thing. And then the, the organisers just ran off with the cash. Apparently, they told the helpers who were left that they should leave at the same time. A lot of the helpers didn't leave at that point because they, they felt really bad about running away like the, the organizers had done. So about, I left at half three. So about four o'clock when the, um, the venue found out that the organizers had left, they basically told everyone to leave at that point. So the, the whole con shut down an hour early at that point and everybody was told to leave. Um, so the venue never got paid, the, you know, the Hilton, the hotel never got paid, none of the guests got paid, or very little, anyway. And, yeah, the organisers have just disappeared. That's what happened, and uh, allegedly it's, you know, they, they've, they've got form for doing this. So. Well, as you said there, though, Jason, allegedly this happened. So I'm going to come to Pete first. I mean, Pete, I mean, what possible ramifications could there be, for, first of all, the event organiser, and then for other future Comic-Cons? Yeah, there's simply so many cons, you know, comic cons these days that, you know, it's, I mean, does the odd dodgy one affect other ones? Probably not, actually. I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd not heard of this one. I didn't know Jason was going to or anything. I saw saw some things online, but I don't know. I, th- I just think there's so many. It's just, it's not going to have an impact, I'm it, afraid. It's having an impact on all the ones by Hampshire Toy Fair. So basically... Yeah, yeah. I mean, for, on, for the company running it, yeah, people are going to be, OK, yeah. this is rubbish. But in a grand scheme of, of Comic-Cons, I mean, the average punter just isn't, isn't going to even know. If, if hardly anyone, anyone went, um, I fear there's there could be further, you know, So all the Facebook incidents. Have, uh, the Facebook group for Southampton Comic-Con has been deleted. The Facebook group for the... The, the limited company that runs the con Hampshire Toy Fairs has been deleted and the the con that they were doing next which is Hampshire Hampshire Comic Con at the same venue at the end of October has also been deleted on Facebook 
though at this point you can still go onto their website and buy their 805 850 pound vip pass you can buy five of those in one go for four and a half thousand quid i would suggest that nobody does that because this bargain this con is never going to happen so be, yeah. beware i'm yeah? thinking more of the guests who've been to this show and whether other guests who were other smaller shows are suddenly not going to hear about this and what the ramifications of that could be. So just say, for example, somebody like Dave Tree, who runs the show completely properly, um, is he now going to start getting guests want their money up front? Um, are the Hiltons going to want their money up front? I mean, everybody's going to be looking at this show and thinking, we can't be caught out like this, Pete. Yeah, I mean, it, it must happen. These things must happen. It won't be the first time a guest hasn't been paid or... The first time, you know, something's happened. I mean, I, w- I would assume there's there's some you know protection in their in the contracts, yeah, because they're, they're obviously part of an organisation. I'm assuming, you know, they're part of a, an agency who who gets these gigs booked for them, and um, they're probably used to things pulling out. I mean, how many times have we had, especially with COVID, you know, over the last couple of years, they must be used to things happening that have gone against the the expectations. So. Yeah, and you know, if they don't, they don't go to a thing, they don't, uh, they don't lose out because no money is exchanged hands and, and whatever. But I don't know. So there's so many conventions popping up that, I mean, I mean, apart from ones from the same company, how can you possibly say it's going to affect conventions ongoing unless that company or those individuals are part of it? But even then, you, you know, sadly, your, your common or garden person who doesn't really follow the drama of conventions will just go to it because it's got Star Wars on it. You know, it's it's just I think it's just part part of the nasty world we're in these days. Someone will always try and be there to con you. Andy Norton, I mean, we've been to shows before and they've shut up early and there's never been any signs or worries. And I'm going to guess when Jason started to see people packing up on the Sunday, it was just a kind of, yeah, it's starting to wind down now. So should people be over worried if cons start packing up early? No, um, I think the, the people in the know would be affected and a bit wary. Is this is this that different? You know, that's my own question. I think it is a bit different, but is it that different to you see every Christmas, don't you, about some chances who set up Santa's Grotto or Christmas Wonderland, and there's a, there's a horse with a pair of rain, uh, antlers stapled to its head, and that's pretty much it. You know, there, there are con people out there as as Pete said. The difference is here is yeah, as you say, the uh, the guests might be put off joining in future ones but most of the show most of the shows are long-standing reputable people anybody can set up a show and people do and actually it's, it's really nice you know the lot you know when when echo first started their first guest um would there must have been some apprehension there but now it's going on and on and you know they get more and more guests there and better guests every time because they know it's a trust trustworthy show and um, i think if you actually you know, go back to your question if you're at the show and it starts packing up yeah, you you wouldn't be you wouldn't be too concerned unless you were the the two individuals that Jason was talking about earlier that that paid all that money for uh, for the the VIP tickets. Andy Preston, to wrap this up, is this just somebody looking at celebration and got overhyped with the greed and the amount of money and the you know the the ticket sales for that and uh, London Film Con Con things like that? Looks rather like it, doesn't it? Perhaps overreached himself, as you say, got greedy, thought, you know, we're seeing all these mega passes, these super duper platinum diamond passes, um, selling for hundreds and hundreds of pounds and thinking, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Thank you. Um, but you know, you, you've got to offer something pretty special to get people to pay that kind of money. Um, you've got to 
offer you know the up close and personal contact with the guests and almost a, a unique experience and as we've said the back to the future guests have just come off the back of another con where pretty much that was uh, was on offer so the chances of people paying that sort of money twice is fairly limited i think uh, you've got to know what you're doing you've got to know your market you've got to be confident when you go into setting up a big con like this and you you don't run before you can walk and uh, you know the weather obviously didn't help get the numbers down on the door but they must have realized some way in advance that it wasn't going to wash its face. The um, problem with this, uh, but, it wasn't well publicised. So my friends who are in, live in Southampton, I told them about this con at London Film and Comic Con the week before. They didn't even know it was on. So if people in Southampton didn't know the con was on, then obviously that is really going to reduce the amount of ticket sales you're going to make as well. So. Oh, to- totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, pe- people like Jason Joyner know what he's doing. He gets the good guests. He, you know, he, he, he treats them right. He offers a genuine value for money in the uh, packages that he puts together. And, he, and uh, you know, people go back time and again. But, you know, Jason's got a lifetime experience in this. It's not something that anybody else can just set up and do and expect to make a fortune off. This guy, hopefully, is going to get his just desserts. I imagine that um, the law is going to be after him. And uh, rightly so, by the sound of it, you can't treat people like that. Absolutely, and let's hope that uh, there's no association with any of Dave Tree's events because, as he said there, his association ended in 2016. The moon with the Rebel base will be in range in 30 minutes. Right, Uncle Owen, I think these images might have been stolen. What, not more shenanigans, Richard? Yeah, more shenanigans. So I saw this on Facebook and I I want to say Jason Smith was the first one to chime in on this one. Facebook post... Um, from Wolf Lipinski, who is one of the authors of Varian Fillin. So who wants to take this story? I'll take it if you like, Rich. I saw this as well. Um, this is something that Wolf posted up on the 25th of June, and it's done the rounds on a couple of Facebook groups, Variant Fillin and others. It's probably easy if I just read out Wolf's post and uh, put it in his own words. So he says, I hope I have your attention. For a while, a book has been making its rounds on the German market. I can't stress this enough. I was asked for permission to donate pictures to this said book, but I declined very clearly. And the proof is there via PM screenshot. Let's start from the beginning. Research is very time and money consuming. You need to have the stuff buying and hunting. You need to do the research. Very time consuming to do the pictures and to to publish and to write a text. It sounds easy, but I just spent 12 hours only photoshopping the sheets for the Ben Cape, let alone the hunting, the money, the research and communicating with experts. I've presented guides since 2008 for free via the Internet. I often get mocked because I use watermarks. Well, as the sample shows here, it is for a reason. Anyway, I started with the COO Guide 1.0, which I had help with from many collectors, and I asked every single one of them to use the pictures and got permission. Now, in 2022, a book appeared on the German market. It shows COOs, Leddy, Pock, BBP, Glassleet, and so on. But it shows almost all pictures have been stolen from TVV, that's the variant villain, TIG, the Imperial Gunnery, and RS, Rebel Scum. Namely, it's the hard work of myself, also known as W. Boba Fett, Stefan Callier, also known as Walkie, 
Javier Ruiz Lopez, also known as Javier Star Wars Spain. Marco J, also known as Dr. Dengar. Horacio Narvez, also known as Ozio, and probably many more. Someone just copied and pasted our work and cut off our watermarks. Is this legal? No, it is definitely not. It's copyright infringement. Did we think about legal action? Yes, we did. What we want to do is to stop this book being sold. And if you have already bought it, please make a donation to the real owners of the work. PayPal is thevariantvillain at gmail.com. We will split the donations amongst each other. We're still trying to figure out how much content was used without permission, but it's already really, really a lot. Javier found over 80 pictures copied from his own book into this one. It contains almost all COO pics from my guides, plus my Leddy and Pop guides, as well as Marco's Leddy guides and Stefan's Glass Leap guides. I'll show you just some of it to make the point. Pictures have been stolen ruthlessly. And it goes even further. The author thanks for permission to use them, which is not the case to any of the picture owners. I do ask you to not buy this book. And if you have already, please donate to the real owners. I'll ask you to prevent this thing from being sold. Please report anytime you see it on eBay or Facebook. The author needs to be stopped from stealing and making money on other gents' work. Ronnie Schreiner, stop it. And if you are in a clear mind, you will donate your profit to a good cause. You're selling these books for 38 euros and you probably paid about 15 to 17 euros for printing. I also hope the supporters of this book will clearly, and I mean clearly, distance themselves. And I've posted pictures showing the book and the original sources. Cheers, Wolf. So, uh, Rich, you've seen this one as well. What do you reckon? Fair cop, bang to right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is absolutely despicable. It's always the danger of people posting things online. Frank Muse obviously has got concerns about his baggy guide, and he uh, watermarked a lot of his photographs as well. Um, and this is the reason for it. It's, it's such a shame. You know, it's nice to see these lovely images, but due to, you know, thieves... Um, you know, because digital thieves are thieves in my eyes. Um, not only are they harming other future projects that others may be making, they are taking things that aren't theirs and other people have invested a lot of money in these. So I'm all for any kind of legal action against this guy. And uh, hopefully that's PayPal donations to take that case forward. Oh, did you see Ronnie's reply? Um, he basically said, oh, um, I'm at some wedding or event, I'm a bit busy. I'll send you, I'll, I'll come up with a reply. And he's in a bit and his reply basically was that he he put this thing together for his own personal use and sold a couple of copies to his close personal friends and that was it though clearly it's sitting on ebay buy it now for anybody to pick up for 38 euros so no he's just he denied it and it's just a complete nonsense is he in the same country as uh, as wolf where, where does ronnie hail from I don't know exactly. I presume if it's a German book, he must be based in Germany, I think. Because it's it's really I've looked into this in the past. It's it's really difficult to um, take legal action across different countries it, because there's so many people involved in this, and particularly if you say he's, if he's in Germany, then there's there's a good chance because it certainly does need to happen. Um, but particularly if 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 people are if people are taking your images not for monetary gain, 
then it's really difficult to make a fuss about about them taking it if they're using it for monetary gain it makes it a lot easier but it's yeah but that um international borders do do create an issue there but hopefully they'll be able to uh get them to sort of cease and desist in in doing this and uh any money is made from it will be shared amongst the uh, the guys whose photos it is I don't know which publisher he's used, whether he's gone to a legitimate publishing house or whether it's just something sort of self-published through, you know, you, you can do, almost do this automatically, can't you? You can sort of sign up to websites and uh, they'll print your book for you on demand and send you copies. But I, I would have thought any reputable publisher wouldn't touch this with a barge pole. I can't, I'm just looking on eBay, I can't find it. Well, I don't, I don't think it's been listed since um, uh, it was all put out. No, and uh, of course we we haven't named the book as Wolf hasn't. You know we don't want to give it any publicity. But uh, you know if anybody is aware of it and the channels where it's been sold, then do let Wolf know. Death Star approaching. Estimated time to firing range: fifteen minutes. Tickets displeased, Richard. I'm very displeased by this section. Well, I don't think we've seen anything like this before. I mean. We have thought in the past that tickets would sell very fast, and indeed things like VIP always has. But I think everybody was shocked at how fast the, the tickets sold for Celebration London. So they went on sale, Jedi Master passes sold out in seconds. Four-day passes sold out within half an hour. Saturday passes all gone later that evening. And right now, in mid-July, there are only Monday adult tickets left and children tickets for all the days. I mean, what can we say? It was... It was ridiculous. I think I was in that queue, along with most other people. Um, I think I was 54 minutes initially, and then I went down to something like 12, and then I shot up to 67 and came back down again. It was all over the place. I couldn't quite figure out um, what on earth was going on. Others had the good fortune to log in around at the same time as me. They were 20 minutes in the queue, and then seemed to drop down to 6 minutes very quickly. But I'm delighted to say that I did get the tickets that I wanted. I'm only going to be there for two days, three evenings. So I got my tickets. Um, so how did we all do then? So Andy Norton, I think you were buying tickets for a few people. How did you do? Yeah, so I was uh, trying to get set for the for the family. I wanted to set the family, do the full four days. Uh, similar experience to you, so you know, logged on, told us I had to wait an hour. It went down, went down quite quickly. I think I, I got on there quicker than most. So tried to buy four adult four-day passes and a child's four-day pass. Put them, put them in my uh, basket. Was told that I wasn't allowed to buy that many. Tried three. Wasn't allowed to buy that many. Tried two. No passes left. <laughs> that was that was the uh, my first experience. Ah, and then uh, Andy Preston said, "Keep refreshing; they, they're appearing back. You know, the tickets are coming back." So I did that for a while, and lo and behold, suddenly I could put two two passes in the basket. Got to the checkout, they'd gone; they weren't available anymore. So it's really frustrating. So in the end, I thought, right, I'm just going to buy one adult four-day pass and a child one. Let's just get those in the bag. Did the refresh? Did the refresh? One appeared again. So got those purchased them went through the system and then had to start again so i thought well i'll i'll uh, i'll go to the back of the queue hopefully this refreshing thing will still work it was quite quick second time around maybe 15 20 minutes till i got to the to the front of the queue even refreshing didn't bring the uh, the four day passes back then but scarily when i first logged on the saturday passes had then sold out so i couldn't even get four 
individual days for so three individual days for the rest, rest of the family but i did the refresh thing again and suddenly saturday was back put three three adults for every day in the basket checked out bought my lanyards that's the only uh, bit of bit of uh, celebration merch i'll do uh, and checked out but because of that process i've you know, I, what the actual difference was between um uh, a four-day pass and the individual ones i think it's around about 60 quid maybe a bit more but i've certainly spent more than 200 pounds extra on those tickets uh for exactly the same for exactly the same experience which seems sort of fundamentally wrong um, you know i I love Star Wars, really want to go. It's an expensive uh, few days anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't like having spent that, that extra money, but in the big scheme of things, it, it's just added expense of, go, of going to London. I'd, I'd rather go than, than not have spent that money. But it does does, uh, does great with me a bit. Um, I, I hopefully it doesn't, doesn't mar the experience. But yeah, just a really, really bad system. And Jason, did you say your ticket's fine? Yeah, so, so basically... Um... Before the the queue opened, they said anyone who turned up in the queue before 5 p.m. would be allocated a random place in the queue. So at that point, you need as many different browsers as you can. I was at work. I used my work PC and I had my phones. I just I queued both of them up. The the PC got in at 23 minutes past. I got the four day pass into into my wallet. I quickly selected a couple of lanyards, checked out, got my tickets, and then saw somebody posted about five minutes later saying the four-day passes had gone. Obviously, the Saturday passes went later on. That was a very similar, for me, that was a very similar experience to uh, Chicago, where the same thing happened. You know, I queued up, I got on, I bought a four-day pass, and then pretty much five minutes later, it was gone. So, similar, similar experience for me. Andy Preston, I think you were buying tickets for other people as well. How would you feel? Yeah, I mean, as it was coming up to the time the tickets went on sale, you know, I think we all had similar experiences. We were all sort of in the chat together. I got a chat going with some mates from here um, in our charity fundraising group um, that uh, we we were going to go up together. And quite a few people were in the queue. I got in the queue on, I think, my phone and my iPad and on the PC and in touch with others. None of mine came up uh, quickly. I was sort of 40, 50 minutes uh, back in the queue on all of my devices. And then one of my mates within the X-Wing fundraisers, um, he managed to get one of the early ones. He was a sort of 12 minute in the queue. So uh, immediately we're messaging around sort of saying, well, you know, have you got enough in the bank to sort us all out? Um, So he ended up getting six four day passes and thank goodness he did, because by the time I got there, they'd, they'd all gone, you know, and uh, trying this refresh. And, I, you know, I was sort of seeing this from other people, Facebook and on Messenger, you know, keep refreshing that, you know, sometimes people have put too many in the basket and uh, or, or have put them in the basket on multiple devices so they might come back. But I didn't get a shot personally at getting a four day pass at all. So very grateful to my friend Jeremy for sorting those out. Yeah, it was a mess wasn't it a complete mess it was something of a lottery as to where you got in the queue it was then a lottery as to uh, whether the passes were there when you got there if you did get the passes in your basket it was a lottery as to whether you could check them out there's, there's got to be a better way of doing it than that you know for find it if, if there's that much demand then for goodness sake find a bigger venue sell more tickets make more money i don't know what they're playing at 
I do. We do have friends who managed to get um, VIP passes, and what they did, four of them got together and they said, "Right, we're all going to try multiple devices. Whoever gets in has got to be able to buy four VIP passes." So one of them got in and managed to get them. So they're, 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 they've all got a VIP pass to celebration, which I think is like you know, given given how hard it was to get, they've done really well to do that. They absolutely did, and sadly, we saw some listed on eBay within seconds of going for sale so that's a real shame but never mind pete um you didn't get any tickets um what were your experience of it like <laughs> well my experience was in a field richard and uh, that was the problem i was in a you know like you i was in the same kind of like 55 minutes and it went down really quickly and i had to go and do football training with the kids so uh standing in a field trying to get connected and every five seconds it's dropping out and going you are now in a queue of 55 minutes oh for god's sake so by the time we got in, everything had gone, you know, as in the Saturday, Friday, everything. So it was just not going to happen. But what was really galling was I know he's not a friend or anything. I just know it. I just know him uh, through another friend. And uh, he bought the maximum four day passes he could get. He's got no intention of doing anything other than trying to make a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I offered him some money and he just went, no, I'm going to I'll make double that. And so I said, well, that's tossy, isn't it? You know, really tossy. But then we find out that there might not be a resale uh, system. Light is not connected to them anymore, apparently. I think that's because Light only operates in the States. Yeah, exactly. Um, so. And the, so it wouldn't surprise me if they do sign up with a European partner for a resale program, because some people are bound to want to resale tickets. I mean, according to the the one at the last event that Jason went to, that, that there's loads of people trying to sell them, but. And in fact, people weren't going for it because they were, you know, you can ask money, you know, a, a profit. I, I'm not going to put it this way. I'm not going to spend a lot of money on a scalper ticket. I don't care how official it is. You know, if someone wants 400 quid for a, what, what was a 180 pound with VAT ticket, you know, it's just not happening. I, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Was, was, was a special circumstance because a lot of people pulled out because of COVID. So online, you know, People were trying to sell four-day passes and single-day passes, and there was just no market for people to buy them because everybody already had a pass at that point. Yeah, plus the time is, you know, it, it wasn't the ideal timing going from August to, what was it, May. So a lot of people couldn't make it because of that, because it changed. But, yeah, it, it is a bit disappointing, but it's just, it's, you know, it's just a frenzy of it. And you know that a lot of people are just literally going to, you know, get the get the, all the things they can and flog them online as soon as they can. I mean, you know that it's all about the cash rather than the um, the community as such. So, so lots of not going, lads. There may yet be another opportunity, Pete. I mean, I remember at Celebration 2016, I'm sure there was a second ticket release. Whether they managed to open up a bit more of the venue and found a bit more space or, or, or what it was, I don't know. But uh, I'm sure there was a, a second ticket sale, so you might get that this time around. Or you might get the secondary market opening up, as I say, with the European partners. So uh, there, there is another hope, Pete. Well, the problem is that they do it so close to the – they don't do it like six months out. They do it, you know, a month out. So trying to get anywhere to stay in London is just going to be an absolute mess. Pete, if you do manage to get a ticket to go, you, you're welcome to come around and stay at mine. I'm going to stay in your garden, Jason. Well, I mean, but no, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay silly prices for tickets. You know, I can't go because there's just two friends and then I'm not going to go. Yeah. Well, I we, mean, it's, we, a, it's a real pisser, but that's just the way it is. We can perhaps put out a call to all listeners. I mean, as, as we said earlier, people were buying tickets in groups, buying for friends. If anybody listening has got an extra ticket, 
that uh, they can spare, then uh, there's a gentleman here who would be very, very grateful to hear from you. Rebel Base, one minute in closing. London calling, Richard. Yeah, so that's it for Celebration Chat, though. Let's head over to London Film Comic Con, which was on a couple of weeks ago, and our very own con man, Jason Smith, was there. So, Jason, London Film Comic Con, how to stack up the previous shows. Right, so uh, it, it, it's it's a three-day show at Kensington Olympia. Now, obviously, Kensington Olympia is a venue which is uh, they're, they're basically redeveloping it. So the amount of space that there is for con use is... Um, is reduced and certainly the last couple of cons it's been much smaller than ones that were ran pre-covid but um they've they've still got a lot of big guests uh, new guests that haven't signed before um it's very much focused around autograph uh get, people getting autographs people getting photo shoots with said guests um paid talks things like that so it's very basically a big logistical exercise about you know getting people queued up, getting them through, getting them their things and, and making sure everybody everybody's kind of looked after. Um, and I kind of go more more for the kind of uh, the stalls and cosplay side of things. So I, I, I was kind of, again, there with my uh, Back to the Future cosplay group. We were in the masquerade at, uh, for five o'clock on the Friday. Um, I decided the previous con I'd been to for London Comic Con, I'd been all three... Well, I, I bought a three-day ticket and I ended up going two days because there just wasn't enough for me to do, given that I'm not into autographs and, and photo shoots. So here I just bought a Friday ticket and that was more than enough. I mean, I got around everything in the day. So they had a couple of polls with uh, all, of the, all the usual kind of vendors selling pops and um, popular film and uh, merchandise and things like that. There was a Star Wars zone uh, ran by um, Dave Tree. Um which is very good. There were a number of um, things at, at that. Um, this is where I can kind of cover the second half of my uh, of the things that I, um, I I got in the last month, and it was like the the Star Wars Star Wars Zone swag that I got. So um, Generation Skywalker were there with their uh, funky new uh, display stand, kind of advertising uh, all their wares. So they had a they had a very nice set of of, of flyers. With uh, different different kind of sponsors on the back of it, so I got a set set of those. They had a they had a very nice display stand which had kind of various uh, things you could look at in there. They had some Helix stuff. There was um, what else was there? There was Helix stuff. There's Ewok chase set in there. You know, some very nice vintage collectibles. Some some Star Wars beer at the bottom. So nice things to look at in there. Uh, Jez was there with his. Um, He's running Stormtrooper stuff. So he was basically, um, he stopped running now, but he still had a bunch of uh, medals left over. So he was um, selling the medals for charity. So I, I very cheekily bought one that claims that I've uh, ran 100 miles. So I'm, I've, got a, I've got a badge for the 100, 100 mile run that I've uh, allegedly uh, done. But anyway, all for charity is all very good. Panda tracks were there. It was very nice kind of seeing all the Panda tracks guys. They had a selection of their uh, Bunko booths that they do at Dave Tree's Family Fun Day. So that was there. I, I got some Fanta Tracks badges sticker. And I've got a Mark Newbold trading card, which is uh, pride of place in my swag cabinet now, my Mark Newbold trading card. Uh, Dave was there selling all his uh, bits and bobs. I got a flyer from him for my, for, uh, my swag cabinet. 
Uh, and there was uh, Darth Elvis. I mean, obviously, he featured in um, some of Dave's online shows during COVID. He was there. Another podcast called Star Wars Sessions that I hadn't kind of seen before. I got a badge and sticker from them. There was obviously um, a bunch of people um, who'd been in, you know, in, in the film who were signing stuff. All, all the smaller kind of people that you normally get like echo they were kind of there kind of signing stuff and there's quite a few uh, cosplay groups so you could get kind of like pictures with some of the some of the sets and um you know there was lots of people cosplaying various star wars characters so you know i spent quite a lot of time, a lot of time in the star wars zone but you know I've, I've got a lot of mates there so i was kind of like mate chatting with people maybe not as much as for the star wars stuff but it was all very good there was, there's kind of been like previous previous uh, London Film and Comic Con said I've had more kind of larger kind of companies kind of you know um, with kind of experiences you could do the only one there that was of any note was uh, one for the new um, Minions uh, film so there's this kind of Minions experience where you could um, pretend to fly the plane because in the in the movie it kind of loops the loop and does various things so they had basically um, it, it's a full kind of plane simulator run by actual real pilots and stuff and you're going to sit down and you had to kind of take off kind of fly around and then try and try and kind of buzz buzz the tower which was which is a lot of fun we we kind of went in at the end of the day when there was less of a queue and you know we still queued for 30 minutes but that, that was a nice experience i know there's been lots of posts online about the saturday and the fact the saturday was really busy and it wasn't well organized and Lots of lots of people who've never been to con before going, well, you know, I turned up to see some amazing big American guest and, you know, I went to get my photo taken. They took my photo. It took a couple of seconds and, you know, I, I didn't get to say hello. I didn't get to have a chat or anything. And when I went and got my autograph, it was a similar experience. They just signed my, you know, signed my picture and I was kind of, um, you know, I didn't get to get a picture with them when I was getting my autograph signed and stuff like this. It, it's just economics. If they have a really big guest, they cost a lot of money, so they have to charge a lot of money for the photographs and the autographs, and they have to sell a lot of them. So logistically, if it's a really big guest, all you can do for the photo shoot is try and get people through in a few seconds. Otherwise, it's not economically viable to even get the guest there. So, so all these people saying, oh, I wanted a kind of guest experience – you're not going to get it at a photo shoot or an aut- or maybe not even at a, you know, an autograph signing. What I do, if you want the guest experience, go to their talk. You'll kind of hear from them for an hour. You can sit in the front row if, you, you know, if you're allowed to. You can stick your hand up and ask them a question. You know, that, that's your guest experience. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're getting the photo and autograph, that's really all you're paying for. Anything else that you get is a bonus. So if there's a guest there that isn't got, hasn't got a big queue on, they will talk to you, you know, at Southampton Comic Con the following week, I got a five-minute chat with Bob Gale because, you know, there weren't that many people there. And he was obviously, well, you know, we had a nice chat. So that, that's kind of how it works. I mean, I can see a lot of the things that were said about, you know, bad organization on Saturday and, and all the rest of it. It's kind of swings and roundabouts. And if it's big guests, you know, you're going to have big queues. You're not going to get a lot of time with the guests, basically. But, I mean, as far as the show goes, I mean, it's a show that's been going for a long time now, you know, it's been going for well over ten years, and I, you know, I, I, I go, I go to every single one, and I have a great time. So I'll keep doing that. Rebel base, one minute and closing. Brian's toys in a book. Why is Brian's toys? Is which Brian's this? How many Brian's have we got? Tell me about Brian. 
well, we've got lots of Brian's, but I'm going to hand this one over to Annie Preston, who posted on our Facebook page about this. I did. This is our friend Brian Hickey, who uh, yes. Chris, Chris Porteous and I interviewed a few months back, uh, and he has released an ebook of his Star Wars action figure photography. Um, what he's been doing, uh, he's been following the story of the original trilogy from start to finish uh, with photographs of action figures uh, using only household objects and in-camera effects. He's had these on several Facebook groups. The results are absolutely stunning. Uh, the photography is superb, but it's so lovely to see them well presented in book format. Uh, all the images together and in logical sequence, you can flick through, you can follow the story of the movies. Uh, obviously on Facebook, you can find the images, but none of it's in order and some of them get lost in Facebook's algorithms and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just wonderful to see them in this way. Brian has uh, posted um, saying that uh, I've been sharing my Star Wars original trilogy recreations in the Facebook groups for the last two years, and I've had so much support from the members. As many of you know, I've wanted to collect these images in a book and get it published. I'm not quite at the publishing stage yet, but for now, I've compiled all of the shots into a digital book for you all to enjoy. Hit the link below and may the force be with you. Now, the link will pop up on our social media channels uh, Facebook and Instagram, etc. But if you search Google for issue, which is I S S U U, Brian B R I A N Hickey H I C K E Y, then it's one of the top links um, for that search. So do go and have a look. And uh, I hope, really hope, this gets enough attention that he can get this into a printed coffee table book because it really does deserve it. Superb. Uh, recommend anybody go and have a look at that. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I'd, uh, I might be stealing his images for the uh, for, for, like, the art, <laughs> for the podcast stuff because it is so good. And it also, I mean, that's that's what I want to see. I don't want to. I want to see something that reminds me of when I was a kid. I hope he does like a Star Wars Return of Jedi Empire Strikes Back and then does an Ewok one. That'd be quite funny. Oh, he's, he's done Empire and Jedi. It's the whole. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I mean as in, in, in a nice presentate, presented book. Actually ah, have, I'm with you. you know, each one, but not, not just go full on and do a 500,000 page book, uh, but actually, you know, spread it out a bit because uh, I think it'd be a great thing to flick through. Yeah, he's got other books out for his uh, Action Force and other toy photography. Uh, but he's not done a Star Wars published book as yet. So, yeah, it would, would be great to see. Um, he's also doing, I've seen on Facebook, popping up some uh, shots with the action figures and the toys that aren't necessarily from the movies, just sort of scenes he's conjured up with his imagination. Uh, those are equally fantastic. So, uh, yeah, go, go go and check it out.
I'm delighted to welcome Narayan Naik to the Vintage Rebellion for our main interview. Um, I'm guessing it's good morning, you Narayan, over there at the moment? Yeah, it's around uh, 10 or 11 a.m. here on a Wednesday. Uh, whereabouts are you in um, America, Narayan? Uh, the Atlanta, Georgia suburbs. I remember um, talking to you at the annual, talk about one of your soccer, as you call it, on your soccer players, um, Almiron came over to Newcastle, which is my local club. Um, I believe he played for Georgia at one time, didn't he? I can't remember who that was. That somebody from our MLS team? I yes, know we, we've we traded so. several of our great yeah. players, unfortunately. <laughs> well, but, I, uh, he's, he's starting to uh, he's starting to improve. He, he, he seems to do a lot, but he doesn't score many goals. But uh, <laughs> maybe in time. Right then, so Narayan, um, I want to go all the way back now to your very, very earliest childhood memories of Star Wars. So where did you first see Star Wars, if you can remember? Where did you, was it in magazines or did you see posters or were you actually taking the theatre or, or was it even TV? Because you're quite a young one, aren't you Narayan? Uh, yeah, I wish I was, I could say I was that young, but let's see. My f- earliest uh, memory in the theatre um, was definitely Empire Strikes Back, um, I believe, in 1980, probably at the tail end of the year. Um, we actually had just come to America from India earlier in that year. So I'd never seen Star Wars and probably was too young to even remember it um, in the theater. Uh, but I do remember seeing, I believe there's an HBO broadcast, maybe in 1980 or 81, as the first time I saw Star Wars. So I kind of did it backwards. I saw Empire first, then saw Star Wars. Um, but more distinctly, I remember seeing Star Wars when it had its um, network premiere, when they had all the uh, commercial bumpers and the, uh, I think the Star Wars making of a trilogy documentary, you know, as part of the, the whole broadcast, it you know, kind of made it a whole whole show out of it um and that one i distinctly remember i even pretty sure we had that on vhs or uh, vhs tape but as far as return of the jedi i definitely remember in the theaters and remember the long lines that winded around uh, all the way around the theaters so that one's probably the one i remember the the clearest but definitely remember seeing empire and jedi in the theater star wars on tv Sorry, I don't know if you know this, but obviously India to America was quite a culture shock. And when Star Wars arrived, it really seemed to grip America like nothing before. So that must have been a double shock for you. And I'm perhaps, I'm maybe thinking more of your parents here rather than yourself, but how did they react to this whole what on earth's going on in this country after you hadn't been there for too long? Yeah, I don't. It's it's hard for me to remember exactly what my parents' reaction was. I do remember that you know we all went to the theaters uh, together back in those days. So you know, to them, it's probably just seemed like uh, just another movie. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know what? It uh, when I remember growing up, it was it was everywhere. I mean, anytime you went to school, there were kids that had Star Wars figures that people were playing with. I remember seeing them in stores. Um, so even very early on. You know, before I even I, I think even before I even saw the movie, you you were exposed to it in just popular culture on TV, in magazines, and the other kids that are around you at school. Uh, what was your collection like as a child? Were you were you quite fortunate, and did you have a fairly decent collection, or did you have to wait until the special occasions? Uh, I don't know. It was that it was a very large collection. It was mainly centered on the action figures, um, and you know, I probably ended up 
started, you know, very slowly. I remember, you know, just getting one or two figures maybe for birthdays or a special occasion, but uh, didn't have too many play sets or vehicles. I think the only ones that I had were the, the Dacoba play set, the Torton Probot play set, and maybe a Tauntaun. Uh, and that was, that was really it. And of course, I had my Vader case, um, but really just the action figures. And, um, uh, I remember one day we were at a there was a, a store in the in the in the town that was closing and they had everything on you know major discount and I remember getting something like thirty or forty figures that I had didn't have um, all at once you know because they were something like three for a dollar or something like that and uh, you know all these figures that I had missed out on I was able to get uh, at a quick succession so uh, so. Do you recall then, because I certainly don't uh, remember doing this at all, I must have done, but do you recall going with a card back, whether it was a 77 back or 79 back, and actually crossing them out and going, I've got that one, or did you go from memory? To, to be honest, I'm not sure I had, you know, other than that one big kind of binge pickup, a lot of times it was just like one or two figures at a time. So I always knew kind of what which ones I had. And I really I stopped probably... You know, the second wave of Jedi was probably my last few figures, but for the most part, it was mainly Empire and the first wave of Return of the Jedi figures where I bought the most. Um, I don't, I think I only have one figure that ever was on a Star Wars card. I think that was an R5D4. You'll like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, um, they were all on Empire cards, uh, and more often on Jedi cards. So it was, you know, certainly a little later than most people were buying things off the uh, the shelf. I absolutely have no recollection whatsoever of card backs. I think mine probably would have been all tri logos or the back end of Jedi. I would have thought it's fantastic. Obviously, you mentioned Jedi there, so Jedi came and went in the movie theaters, and there was always a kid on the street who was somebody who knew what was going to happen next, or the the, the making, you know, episode seven soon or they're going back and making episode one what do you recall from the ending of jedi and and going into the next period i mean did you dive into ewoks and droids uh i'm not sure i would say i dove in i mean that was kind of like like i said i was already winding down my you know buying action figures in the stores really after this mostly after the first wave of jedi i just maybe got one or two of the second wave but i don't recall buying any power of the force figures um in fact i don't even remember seeing them except once or twice, like in a big discount bin and they were all, you know, damaged cards. But I don't, rem I do remember seeing droids and Ewoks on TV, but never really got into the figures uh, at any point during that time. Um, I do remember the movies as well, but again, it was just sort of, okay, there's a cool star Wars thing on TV. Let's watch it. But I was never really into the collectibles for the Ewoks or uh, droids uh, animated figures at that point. So where you lived as a child, Ryan, were the big department stores like Toys R Us and things there, or was it smaller local independent shops? Yeah, so I grew up, um, at least during the time of my Star Wars collecting, or, you know, Star Wars toy days, uh, in the Pittsburgh suburbs of Pennsylvania. And um, the stores I distinctly remember, um, uh, the one that I think bought the most figures was one called Zare. Um, I don't think that store is around anymore, but there's still price stickers for that store um, that I still look for uh, on card backs. Um, Children's Palace uh, was another one. Uh, I think sometimes there was an affiliate of Children's Palace called Child World that was also there. I don't remember Toys R Us. Uh, I know they were around, but I don't remember any in the Pittsburgh area. 
a couple other stores, Kaufman's. Um, there were some smaller mall stores um, as well. Um, but uh, I do remember KB Toys much later, you know, towards the end of the line, and, and that's sort of where I saw the Power of the Force figures in bins uh, much, much later. But uh, during my childhood days, um, again, Zare, Kaufman's, Children's Palace, I think were the mainstays. Yeah, you're very fortunate that way because certainly where I lived in the northeast of uh, the UK, we would have had one shop which was possibly um, Tesco's or something like that, which would just have an aisle. Now, I, we, we watch these videos and we see photographs all over Facebook of these huge store displays with aisles and aisles of, of toys and things like that. Was it really like that everywhere or was that just in the main areas like New York and, and places like that? Oh, they were definitely there in um, the stores that I remember. Uh, definitely in Children's Palace, for sure. Uh, I remember, you know, walking in um, one day and I was just like shocked to see how much was on the shelf. And of course, you want to buy it all. Um, you know, as soon as you see it and you know, your parents just, you know, dial it back a notch. <laughs> Especially, I think, when Jedi came out, uh, tons of product on the shelf. I distinctly remember that. I even remember the first time I saw those two Ewoks that were blacked out. The first time I saw them in the store, and I was, was just begging my mom to, to let me buy them because these are like the super secret figures that nobody knew about, and I, I had them right there in my hand. <laughs> so, so I, I, like most children, your, your attention went elsewhere. Personally, I went to Master of the Universe and then headed into video gaming, um, and then at some point you came back into collecting. Um, was the bug always there? Was the Star Wars interest always there, or did you just lose interest completely until much later on? I think it was always there, um, you know, as far as I'm not sure I would have called anything collecting after uh, at that point yet. You know, I think we were always interested in seeing any new Star Wars content that would be out. Uh, if, you know, the figures had come out again, I'm sure I would have started bought, start buying them up again. Um, but, yeah, you you go through a period, I think, where, you know, you're you really don't have much disposable income at that point, And there's really not much in the theaters or on TV to kind of stimulate you buying it. So I, again, I will, probably didn't really get back into it until the early to mid nineties. And what was the hook that got you back at that time period? Uh, definitely the, the Timothy Zahn novels, as well as the dark empire comics. Um, and then of course the, um, by the time the, you know, the special edition hype started, you know, I was all back in. And of course, you know, things are starting to show back up in in stores with the Power of the Force 2 line and so forth. And at that point, you know, everybody was jumping back in. So uh, I was too. I mean, mo most of us did buy Power of the Force or Episode 1 figures. But did you go down to the vintage and how did you start acquiring figures back then? What, what was it you were doing? Yeah, so of course I was buying, you know, the new stuff that was on the store shelves. But um, the vin the first vintage stuff I would go back and try to get. The, the problem was not so much that, you know, whether I wanted to get vintage or not. I cer certainly did because I, there were so many figures that from my loose run that I still needed to get. Um, and it was just kind of finding where they were and finding good places to buy them um, because, you know, there was no internet or you know you, you basically had to find these at flea markets or somebody had them at a garage sale and that was that was really it um and so it was just more difficult to kind of track these things down but so i wouldn't say 
I really started doing that until kind of the age of the internet and eBay and, you know, then kind of linking up with other collectors um, in that, at that point that, you know, had these things. So how, how did you get involved in the community then? Did you, did you go down to Rebelscombe or did you head down one of the other pathways or did, did you go pretty independent? So, I mean, at some of the early websites, I remember Rebel Scum, though I'm not sure I joined the forums right away. Um, I did, um, by chance, actually happen upon a collecting group when I was um, during my professional training in Ohio, uh, in Northeast Ohio, actually, in the Akron, Cuyahoga Falls area. I just happened to see a um, fellow collector who didn't know at the time um, was just putting down some pamphlets in a comic shop um, that I just happened to be in, and it, it mentioned a you know a Star Wars collecting collecting meeting at his house and I saw that his address wasn't too far from where I was and I just decided to go and uh, that collector actually was um, Chris Fawcett and uh, ended up meeting um, several other collectors who you might know uh, Bill Cable, John Wooten a few other people and this was I didn't know it at the time but this was the earliest Ohio Star Wars Collectors Club um, back in 1997 and uh Probably went to, you know, maybe about six or seven meetings before, you know, uh, you know, I had to get back in, into kind of more focused on my training. So, um, you know, unfortunately, I never kind of got as involved as I'd wanted to. But I do remember seeing, you know, a lot more vintage um, at those meetups than I'd ever seen before. Uh, certainly Power of the Force carded figures were something especially, you know, rare and uncommon ones were in Chris's collection and that those just, it was just amazing to see those and really, um, I think jump started my first vintage focus, um, when I started collecting again, maybe in the, in the early 2000s. Well, we're going to cover your collection soon, Ryan, but what, when you're talking about the likes of Chris Force and John Wooten, I'd imagine by that point they'd already started acquire pre-production items. So were they willing to talk about those and was there a general interest in them as much as there is now? Or was it a kind of, yeah, they're kind of cool, but they're not, you know, the finished articles? Yeah, I definitely remember in those meetups them talking about going to Cincinnati and going dumpster diving or, um, you know, meeting, meeting, you know, some employee and, uh, you know, buying their items from their basement or whatever. But, and he definitely already had pre-production items in his collection at that point. Uh, things I distinctly remember were some micro collection four ups, certainly some coin molds and, and several other things. So yeah, and they, they would mention uh, certain names like Gus Lopez and Chris Jorgulius. And I was like, who are those guys? <laughs> so. You know, of course, you know, later I'd find out about the Star Wars Collector's Archive, which I think I was vaguely familiar with at that point. But I do remember hearing some of these names and thinking, gosh, how, how are these people knowing about all these these things that, you know, were never produced or never made? But, yeah, that was that was really my first exposure um, was was through some of those early meetups. I wish I had joined them on some of these trips, but I never, never had a chance to. Or, or recorded some of the conversations because a lot of that's sadly going to be lost to time now. Yeah. Such a shame. We take things for granted now, don't we, when we're going to, you know, places like the annual and it's so well documented and you've got, you know, mobile phones and video cameras and, and all sorts going on. Um, but that's to right. go back to go back in them times and talking to Chris when he's, you know, talking about dumpster diving and just getting involved, it must have been fantastic for you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's great memories. And, uh, you know, we just did a, a collector panel at Celebration, um, this past Celebration, about, you know, the evolution of networking. And I recounted some of these stories. And I think I even asked Chris right before the panel, would you happen to have any photos from those days? Um, because I'd love to use them for the panel. And I, I would love to have them just for my own mm -hmm memories but uh unfortunately i don't think he had any of the meetups themselves i think you know sometimes they you know some of the later more special events they had photos of but um, he couldn't quite remember now looking at your collection Ryan, i mean i knew your collection was something special and i've, I've got to say i think your collection is quite unique in the way that it's presented and the whole range of items that you cover there aren't too many collections like yours if you had to sum your collection up in three words what would you use you mean the display, the collection display? Yeah, everything. How if you had to sum it up? Visual appeal. Yeah, absolutely. I think every, everything I've tried to arrange is to maximize visual appeal. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to display everything I own. That certainly is not possible. You know, as as a kid, I'd always imagined kind of having my action figures in environments and dioramas, and you know, certainly that's a big part of my collection display. Uh, obviously, my you know, focus, various vintage and, and modern focus uh, areas are, are all on display. Certainly my three focus characters certainly take up big portions of the collection as well. But at the same time, I also want it to be a relatively uncluttered space and, you know, still be a functional space for people to use um, as well as enjoy the collection. Now, your collection is displayed magnificently it's it's truly amazing and I, and I really hope you allow us to share these photos on our social media platform um sure have you taken any inspiration from other collectors when you've been going around to their places thinking oh you know what i, I really like the way you've got that set out oh I, th I think absolutely every time um i've i think i've been blessed to be able to see quite a few collections uh, from around the country um around the world and um I think you take inspiration from all of them um, and everybody displays things differently. And I think, you know, one thing I learned is, you know, if you can't see it, it's not quite the same. And the le sometimes less is more in terms of uh, collection display. And um, certainly a lot of uh, there's certainly a lot of acrylic in my um, in my display because, you know, to be able to see things clearly uh, without anything blocking um, lighting is a very important part um, and so I've always made sure that there's there's plenty of lighting around for people to be able to see the displays and everything is is always a work in progress but most definitely even through those very first um, Ohio meetups at Chris Fawcett's I was inspired by the how collections were displayed and so I'm sure I've incorporated all of that um, you know when I've gone and created mine well I would certainly, I, I don't mean to insult anybody here, but I would describe your collection as clean. Now, that's not to say that anybody else is dirty by any sense and means, but it's very tidy and it's it's well lit and it, you can tell it's just cared for. And, and that's what I particularly like about it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, you know, I, it, for me, it's also just uh, keeping organized. You know, so it almost feel like if I don't keep it organized, I'll lose track of what I have sometimes. <laughs> And uh, that that helps me. So if I just focus on your vintage items for a moment, I mean, you you have a heck of a lot of vintage Star Wars items and um, things like, 
you know, the Creature Cantina set, for example, you've got three different play sets um, there boxed up in acrylic. What is your goal from the vintage standpoint alone? So from the vintage standpoint, I would say my major focus areas are, uh, as I mentioned before, Power of the Force, um, which uh, for the most part I've collected mostly what I want. And my three focus characters, which are um, Luke Jedi, Boba Fett, and Yoda. And for the most part, production items, um, I certainly try to pick up pre-production when I can. Certainly nowadays, vintage pre-production is is just a, a, a tough reach for most people. Um, it, it's not so matter of you know being able to buy it, but it's just not available. Um, you know, most people, most of these pieces are locked away in collections or just very difficult to monitor. You know monetary wise to even acquire based on the current pricing mainly go for kind of carded uh runs of my three characters um i was able to complete the power of the force run and the coin set didn't really go after you know many of the other kind of other power of the force label things like you know the the play sets or vehicles uh, you know things like the um other than you know the skiff um, but really haven't gone after kind of like foreign power of the force items in, in that such. So it's mainly been focused on the coins and the uh, production carded figures for that line. Um, as far as my three focus characters, I not only collect vintage for them, but just all eras. And, you know, as far as pre-production, the, the, the few pre-production items, one of which is my favorite is, is the, the original master transparency for the Luke Jedi photo art. Which was, you know, used to create the uh, the card back. Uh, subsequently, you know, this was, uh, I think, originally sourced from LPK, uh, which is the packaging company. So, um, you know, barring me ever acquiring the photo art, uh, which I know where it is, but I, I don't think it'll ever come to my collection. But uh, that that's probably the uh, the grail piece that uh, in my pre-production uh, collection. Yeah, I do have a lot of other side focus, as you mentioned, the cantina. Vader cases, vinyl cases, um, amongst others. So, so if we look at FET for the moment, um, automatically people are going to assume, why would you go down the FET route? It's probably the most expensive of all the characters. It can be both rewarding and frustrating at the same time. So realistically, you're going to have to accept that you're not going to be able to acquire everything in FET. Have you made some kind of allowances, for example, using card backs at times to fill in gaps? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Boba Fett's a very popular character for obvious reasons. He's a very, you know, very, uh, very visually interesting action figure um, and card back, um, you know, that spanned the line, you know, from Star Wars all the way to, to droids. Yes, yeah, certainly, you know, with, with Boba Fett, it, pieces are definitely more expensive to acquire and just harder to acquire. And so, uh, especially for some of the, you know, f- for the most part, I've been lucky enough to acquire most of the North American releases um, for FET, you know, and that that wasn't that wasn't easy at all. But you know, now what's left is really the foreign releases, which are incredibly difficult. And so, yes, for sure, you know, even cardbacks can be difficult to acquire for some of those. Um, so yeah, more, more than happy. Um, in fact, there's still some card backs I'm looking for, um, to fill out the collection, but, uh, they're, they're, they won't be easy. <laughs> so you, you didn't buy that. I can't remember if it's a wax sculpt or a hard copy of Boba Fett that was sold recently. Yeah, that, that wasn't you, was it not? Oh, I wish it was. <laughs> is it no, nearly a million? Unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I don't even, I can't even imagine. <laughs> it's crazy what he is. It's so, crazy. Yeah. I mean, 
It's a gorgeous piece, though. It is, absolutely. I, I've, I always have loved Fett, and I think a lot of that is to do with the action figure. Um, I, I think it's you can't really describe the impact that that figure has had on the character. It had so little screen time in you know empire and jedi but it was the kids imaginations with that rocket with, with, with how great the action figure was i can totally understand the draw to fit yeah absolutely um you know it uh it, it certainly i think it was one of the few figures that had like an extra paint application as well but yeah just you know great action features um and again a very visually interesting character in the movie and as an action figure now we'll move on to Yoda next. So you've chosen, in fact, do all three of your focuses have different cardback images? I'm not so sure about Luke Jedi, but Yoda's also got um, a different character on there. Um, so, so why was Yoda your second route? Why did you go down that one? I think because I, when I first saw, as, as I said before, the first movie I saw, Star Wars movie I saw in the theater was Empire Strikes Back. And the character that really makes the most impression is Yoda. Um, especially when you're first seeing that movie, it's just like, you know, he's really the heart of that movie. Um, and that dialogue between him and Luke is just almost universal in its, in its impact in, for the entire trilogy. Um, so it was, I, I think that's probably where it started, you know, and I do remember getting that action figure and it was actually, even for being a small action figure, it came with a lot. I mean, it came with, what, three accessories, if you count the cloak, a fourth accessory, you know, so it was, it just had a lot of play value to it. And uh, again, one of the few play sets I had growing up was the Dagobah playset. And I remember every time it rained, I would take that thing out near my backyard and put it near the tree and, you know, of course have Luke and Yoda you know, reenact some of those scenes. And you have a lot of foreign items as well for Yoda. You know, were some of those particularly hard to track down? Yeah, I mean, as with any any of the foreign items nowadays, they're incredibly hard. I think Yoda's probably the most complete of the three runs in terms of foreign items. That between that, between that and Luke Jedi, but I, I think certainly the more difficult foreign items I've been able to acquire for Yoda, and I, it's just been a matter of, being fortunate, being in the right place at the right time, or having collectors, other Yoda collectors reach out to me, um, you know, you know, selling certain items. So, yeah, I, I would have never imagined um, when I started collecting, you know, Yoda on card back that I'd be able to acquire some of these. But I've been very fortunate to be able to. Um, and, yeah, some of them are very unique card backs, much different than the Kenner design. Um, you know, things like the French square card and the uh, the Spanish uh, debut card, which has a different background, has a red background as, as opposed to the yellow that's typically seen with most Toyota cards. Now, FET obviously had a lot of different paint apps. You know, uh, I think there's five alone for the Tri-Logo from memory. Um, but Yoda's paint apps and colours are quite stark in contrast. Um, certainly some of the, um, the Yodas I've seen are very alien green versus a duller green and they've got different colors and snakes and things like that and um, do you pay much interest to that when you collect them on card or are you just happy having the carded item yeah um if you if you know me uh richard you'll know that i'm like a variation variation fanatic so even in my loose run i've gone and kind of after different paint variations but yeah absolutely before i even started collecting yoda figures i was always into all the different head 
color variations and snake, you know, snake variations. And um, certainly as I've become more knowledgeable about it, all the different factories and you kind of, you know, how they correspond to these different paint um, paint applications and different accessories. And uh, yes, absolutely. If I, I definitely go after different variations on the same card back um, for all of my figures, uh, especially I think Yoda is the most noticeable because you can, you know, see the different green hues uh, in his head. But uh, I believe there's even one card back from the Kenner line. I think it's the 41 back. It has like five, five or six different Yoda variations on it. And uh, I've been looking and hunting for all of those. So absolutely. And, and you talked about snakes there and certainly going on for conversation about seven or eight years ago now. Does the green snake Yoda exist or is that degradation in your opinion? It is degradation, but it's it's a predictable degradation of a certain snake. It doesn't happen ah, with every brown snake. It happens yeah. with the brown snake that comes from a certain factory. Uh, I think in specifically it's the, the Cater factory. Uh, so it's very characteristically found with certain Yodas and not others. Yeah, I mean, if if people find it easier to refer to as a green snake, um, again, I think it's it's very typical that that particular snake from that factory is the from that factory is the one that degrades. So in that way, um, I don't think it necessarily needs to be labeled as a green snake, but uh, it is. It does initially start off brown, but they're almost all greenish by now. So even inside the card back. Now that clears that one up. But again, Luke Jedi, you've got an incredible amount of variations there. Um, certainly the way that some of the capes are packed and different kind of capes. I mean, it must be fascinating making all these discoveries or new discoveries when you're collecting, you know, three completely different mixes. What excites you about Luke Jedi? Um, again, it's again one of those figures that's very visually appealing, and uh, just like Yoda was for Empire Strikes Back, Luke Jedi was that character from Return of the Jedi that made the most impact for me. Um, just seeing him for the first time in that black costume, you know, coming into Jabba's palace, it's it's just a, an amazing um, entrance for a main character, and the card back is is just stunning. It's a very dynamic pose, um, you know. You, you know, right in the middle of the action, pulling a blaster on on Java there, and um, you know, probably one of my of the of the three characters, probably one of my favorite card back of the three. But again, just like Yoda, uh, a figure that comes with lots of accessories: a cloak, a blaster, a lightsaber. You know, initially, I don't think I even all these variations. You of course learn about much later with you know the green saber and the blue saber and the snap cloak. But, you know, what's one of the joys of focus collecting is, you know, how, you know, what you learn about these things, um, you know, as you collect them. And, you know, and of course, no, I never started out collecting Luke Jedi thinking, oh, I'm going to go after all these different variations. But as you collect them, you always are looking, you know, for something new to collect. And you educate yourself on, you know, what are the different releases? You know, how are they different from each other? And uh, so it, it it's it makes it more fun in doing it that way yeah absolutely and you've got a lot on luke jedi and i mean luke jedi's appears a lot in the uh, the two packs and things i've noticed you've got a couple of those there um it's the same true of yoda and fett you, you see that appear in two packs much uh you know the kb2 packs yeah. um i i've never seen a boba fett on a two pack yoda from what i understand there's only 
three or four in existence mm-hmm. on the two packs. Um, so the one I own, I think, is a Yoda and a Gamorrean card. And I think there's one other of that one. And I believe the other the other one, which is probably my my Grail two-pack, uh, and I know where it resides. It's a good friend of mine's, but it actually has Yoda and Luke Jedi in the two-pack, <laughs> um, which is an amazing, yeah. um, amazing two-pack to have. Um, Luke Jedi is a little more common to find. It's certainly not a common figure in the two-packs either, but uh, I think I have a one with the Han trench coat, which is a fairly common figure in those two packs, and I think one with a Maydeen, another pretty common figure. Um, but uh, I think both of those actually do have the cape that does come with Luke Jedi, so it's, it's rare to find accessories within the two packs, so it's nice to have both of those. Which foreign card back do you like out of all of the, the three you've got? For me, it was always the Italian one, for Har- the Harbour one always done it for me, but what's your favourite out? For, for any of the, the any three of characters? Yeah. or? Yeah, I, I do love the Harbor. Unfortunately, I don't have much in the way of Harbor in my collection. I just was able to um, acquire a Harbor Yoda, which is a lovely card back. A Harbor Boba Fett card back is one of my main needs still. And as you know, those those are extremely hard to come by. You know, card backs included are, are, are very, very scarce. So still still one that's missing from my collection but uh, Luke Jedi, of course, was never on a Harvard card. Um, for him, I do uh, I do love the Lily Letty card backs since they're slightly different looking, almost a, almost a little more airbrushing to them for all three of those characters. I do like the uh, anytime the card back is kind of visually different. For example, the the uh, Spanish early pock card back for Yoda, which again has that red background to the name pill and the uh, the background to the figure. Uh, the figure blister um, and the horizontal layout on the back. It's it's so unique. Um, and that's probably one of my favorite card backs uh, of all in my collection. You know, just the look of, I mean, just the, the, the layout of the card back rather than just the image of the character themselves. I like your Lily Daddy Luke card back. Um, you don't tend to see them in that good quality. Uh, but yours is amazing. Uh, that, you must have been really stoked to pick that one up. Yeah, I did pick that up ungraded at the time and was was astonished when it came back uh, in 85 <laughs> uh, when I submitted for grading but yeah it's difficult to get any Lily Letty um, cards in any kind of decent condition so uh, of course being able to find one from my focus figure in that in that condition was just uh, was just amazing and, and certainly one of the 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 pieces in my collection that I definitely cherish now, you mentioned your 2D artwork that you've got for the new card back. So what role does that have to play in the overall formulation of the card back itself? So the the transparency that, that's in my collection um, basically is, you know, a photo that's, that's taken of the original photo art um, and then reduced in size to the dimensions it needs to be to make the prints for the template. And when they assemble the card back together, all the different elements, including the photo artwork and then the racetrack and the logos, you know, that transparency, which I understand is one of one. And basically that is, you know, and I didn't know this at the time that I acquired it, basically eight by 10 transparencies back in the vintage era is something that was, was pretty expensive and not something that's usually done. And so it has to be a significant step in the process to have it uh, of that size. 
And basically, it's, you know, all those, the prints that are then made from that master transparency are used to create the templates for those card backs. So at one point, that was the origin of all of those, wow. those card backs that you see now for every Loop Jedi um, figured out there. Great pick up that love love story on that and and you mentioned before that for all your runs you also look at the modern items as well so I'm looking at some molds for Luke Jedi so what what's the story behind those pieces? So a few different things I think the one you may be referring to is there's a Suncoast vinyl figure mm-hmm. um, I believe that was released in the, maybe the early 2000s maybe the late 90s uh, sold in those Suncoast video stores here in the states and. I was able to acquire the silicone molds and the hard copy, which is it's actually inside one of the molds uh, for that figure. And it's just amazing to see how much the the actual production figure itself doesn't look as good because of the paint apps. But if you really look at the mold and the details that are there, you can see how uh, an amazing sculpt it was. So that that's you know a real and you know and a, a larger mold, you know, it's much larger than the typical three and three quarter molds. Uh, that you see out there, but that's a gorgeous piece that I was lucky to get. I do have a few modern first shots and kind of pre-production um, um, quality control samples for Luke Jedi as well. A few different, few different sculpts, um, including the Power of the Force two, and I think the Saga collection. Um, also have a few Millennium minted coin packaging prototypes as well. And there used to be a bit of. I don't know if snobby is the right word, but perhaps uh, disinterest towards modern items. But over the last year or two, um, and certainly so with, you know, David Quinn releasing his excellent podcast, um, you know, which sometimes just two or three episodes a month, um, there seems to be a lot more interest in pre-production for modern items there. Do, do you see that as well when Star Wars collectors come to visit your items? Are they just as interested in these modern pre-production items? Yeah, it's interesting because we call them modern, but they're really almost yeah, exactly. 20, 30 years old now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think for sure there's been a lot more interest in modern pre-production, uh, certainly in the last few years. And I, I think part of it is because when there are people that are educating you in the community and the knowledge is being shared out there, it makes it so much more accessible. You know, whereas, you know, I think the hardest parts about when uh, you were collecting, you know, b- back in the 90s, early 2000s, even uh, for vintage things is just the having the information, you know, what was out there, you know, and, until things like, you know, the Steve Sansweet book came out, a lot of people didn't even see images of these things or the Star Wars Collector's Archive. And, you know, as people share that knowledge, I think it becomes more accessible and becomes more popular. Uh, and certainly there's been a good a group of collectors, not just David, but uh, Anthony Pagano. Uh, certainly Justin here locally uh, has, has also turned me on to, um, to modern pre-production as well. So it, it's, it's been fun and it's, it's a way to acquire something at probably, a, a, you know, a much more affordable price point than, than vintage pre-production, certainly. 
And and you certainly enjoy showing your collection in the way that a movie would reflect it. Um, so you certainly have items that are shown off key scenes and you use modern items in there to enhance the vintage. Um, I particularly like the way that you have, I think it was the Dagobah swamps side by side with the, the vintage and the modern items. And you, you have a lot of Jabba's throne, which obviously made perfect sense with Luke Jedi, with, with vintage figures positioned around. And, and I think the vintage and the modern can truly complement each other quite well oh yeah absolutely i I love kind of uh what i call before uh or sorry not before and after but past and present displays Uh, and if if you i think one thing people notice is that i have my loose run displayed um you know right next to it is the modern run so sort of what would be the best modern equivalent of the vintage figure you know just right next to it side by side and i've done the same thing with of course, the the play sets. I, you know, as I have a Dagobah play set displayed right next to a modern custom of Yoda's hut, and the same things with. I have two very large dioramas of Jabba's palace and the uh, Mos Eisley Cantina, and you know, in other places in my collection, I have like the um, uh, not 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 the vintage um, cantina, but the pop up probably Power of the Force era cantina and Jabba's playset displayed with vintage figures. And uh, I also had a sail barge that I was a custom one that I purchased several years before the HasLab one um, was released. And I used that to display vintage, the vintage uh, figures as well as vintage customs um, from Jabba's palace and Jabba's sail barge. Now, you have a huge mix of different things. So I'm I'm looking at your twelve back cards in the in the twelve back bin with the header now. Um, so what keeps you focused, or are you not focused? Are you just do you pick up things that are interesting to you at that moment in time, or are you actively pursuing these things? Uh, yeah. So I'm always trying to compartmentalize actually what I collect. Though sometimes you you just something just appeals to you, and you just go after it. I think what you're referring to there is the um, the the, the uh, display bin. And actually what's in there is, are, are actually 20 backs. So those actually are fed off for uh, Boba Fett offer card backs. And so that, that ties in together with my Boba Fett focus. I don't actually have any 12 backs in my collection, but I do have a 12 back header because I just love the visual look of it. And it, of course, goes together. Uh, any of those headers were uh, relatively interchangeable with the same bin. Um, so as I've been able to pick those up, but, uh, what's mainly on display there's, I think is the 20 back fed offer bin, uh, with that header, uh, yeah, that you see. And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I've actually seen one before. I think that's, I think I've just had my eyes open there now. And I actually don't think I've seen the 20 back bin, but of course there's a good Boba Fett right in the middle. Yeah. It's a gorgeous, um, header. One of my favorites, um, you know, just because it's so visually uh, striking. And uh, um, one of the things I've been dying to do is get a photo of all my 20 back cards in that bin. And I finally got around to doing it. And none of, none of those 20 backs are, are graded. So I actually can do that. Um, I could just, I just took them out of the acrylic cases and just arranged them so they would look as if, you know, they were on a store shelf back in 1979 or 1980, um, you know, how they would have looked. So. That was that was a kick to do that. Now, all the way through this interview, you've 
you know, shown your, your strength and thoughts for the community. And at some point, the Georgia Alliance took off uh, and you got involved in hosting and having swag and meetups and things like that. So what was the start? What what sort all that together initially? And, you know, what made you want to go to the likes of Annual and Ice and things like that? Yeah, so I have to say I've been very lucky uh, to find the Georgia Alliance, and it happened by chance, just like that meeting in 1997 where I met the Ohio collectors, you know, just by chance picking up a pamphlet in a comic shop. Um, I was just visiting a friend after Celebration Orlando um, in 2017, and um, he just happened to mention that, oh, there's a few collectors in Atlanta that are starting up a group. And so, you know, of course, this was something I was waiting, you know, decades for, you know, finding a local collecting group to be a part of. And, you know, of course, all that time I was involved with forums and 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 I'd heard about all the great collecting groups. You meet them at celebrations and at different different events like that. And I you know, so wished that, you know, something like that was near me. And then the opportunity just presented itself. And of course I got in touch with, uh, uh, those guys, you know, Justin Haney, Glenn Williams, Shane Kelly, uh, who had started the group and I think maybe joined after the sec, um, maybe the second or third meetup. Of course, you know, I, I'd been chomping at the bit to be part of a group like this, you know, for so long that, you know, I was, I dove in right from the start and, uh, did everything I could to help, you know, make the group, um, as active as possible and uh, of course opened up my home um, for meetups and uh, you know eventually um, became a regular thing with the summer party the summer social and so um it's been pretty amazing journey over five, the last five years to see um, you know how the Georgia Alliance has become you know one of the uh, the most active groups in the country and so uh, it's uh, I'm blessed to be a part of it Absolutely. I mean, for me, from the UK, I mean, I'm aware of many groups um, over in the States, but I have to say, I think the Georgia group is probably the most fun and friendly and inviting out of the groups. And that's not to say that the groups aren't, of course, but I think you get you get more laughs out the Georgia group. You get more. Um, I certainly remember the Zoom chats that were had during lockdown. They were fantastic. And the time zone difference was wasn't too bad for Georgia, whereas for some others, it's, you know, midnight or one in the morning before they even start at my time. And I, and I certainly really enjoyed dialing, it, dialing into those because you were just with people that you you've known all your life you just haven't met them you know if that makes sense and it was yeah. just good with sitting back with it with a beer or two and just chilling that's that's what i got out with them yeah i have to say um my fellow members are some of the most amazing people i've met in in star wars and um again if we feel like family um and we've always tried to make the atmosphere of our group like you know a family um mm -hmm. type of of place um, not just in our meetups, but in the Facebook group itself, you know, every time we've tried to grow it organically by adding people to the group that we've actually met at meetups or in national meetings. Um, and, and so it's, it becomes a very close knit community. It's not just a bunch of random anonymous people that you don't know. Um, and it's, um, every year, I mean, I think we, it, it grows and, uh, you know, just it's just been a privilege to to know the my fellow members here, and uh, it's um, 
I think we've been lucky to been able to make those connections, not just with the other groups, but uh, with collectors around the country. And we've certainly gotten a lot of help and a lot of advice. Um, I remember just as we started the group, I visited Seattle and I got a lot of advice from some of the collectors from the Sarlacc group, um, certainly the Ohio group, the Pennsylvania group, and of course the New York group have been uh, tremendously influential uh, for us and helpful in getting us um, up and running and you know, making us a better group with their membership in our group and our membership in theirs. Well, I think it's probable that the future of Star Wars collecting, as we're all getting older, is going to survive in these groups. You know, will we still be going to celebration when we're in 50s, 60s? You know, who knows what's going to happen. But the likelihood of you popping around, certainly if I lived in Georgia, popping around in Orion's house for a summer barbecue is going to be far higher. Well, I hope so. Well, I mean, 50s and 60s doesn't seem actually too far away right now. <laughs> no. um, so I'm sure, so I sure hope I'm still going to celebrations, um, for those. But, um, yeah, as far as, you know, the, uh, the Georgia, um, the meetups, including our social, uh, they're open to all of our members and, uh, it's, they're open not only to the members, but the members' families, um, because it's a chance for us to just get to know each other in the, in the entire context. Uh, of our lives and we we meet through star wars but it becomes more than that you know after you, you meet these other collectors and their families it again it's it's about it's almost becomes like family at that point and i think that's the part about collecting that i've enjoyed the most over the last you know five to six years um, it's not so much whatever items i've picked up for my collection but it's the experiences that you have with the friends that you make um, and, you know, how you share that with them. Absolutely. And that's what Chris Riley said to me, the annual, when we're on the boat. It's, it's, uh, he took a little break from collecting to do something that was more important to him and was to put money in the annual. And, and that was absolutely brilliant. But you mentioned the um, families and things in Orion. So I, I think it's your son who I've seen possibly on photos, videos, I, I don't recall. But what do you think the future of Star Wars is going to be with the next generation um, do you think they're going to have that same passion as us coming through are they going to take after, look after our collections do, does your son understand the value of it and I don't mean financial value I mean as in what it means and it's, it's place in history yeah I think it, it I'm not sure it will have the same kind of impact as it does for us because we grew up with it mm -hmm. and that nostalgic appeal is, is not quite the same that being said I, I'm I've always, you know, impressed upon my family just, you know, to, to, to look after these things because, you know, some of these things are not, you know, not something you necessarily just go around and play with. And, 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 uh, um, so, um, it, that thing they do, they, but by this, by this age, they do understand that things are, uh, have collectible value. And, but they, but the next generation, I think, collect will find its own, relationship with star wars of course there's lots of new star wars content um as you know you know for a different generation the prequels are their movies uh or even the sequel trilogy now for a different generation and for another generation it's now the tv shows that are coming out and i think we're just blessed that star wars is still around uh, after so long and it's still in the popular culture and so you know it there are different things that appeal to different people now so i'm not sure they'll be 
the same generation that collects action figures and play sets and things like that, but they, they may find other things like role playing or, uh, costuming or prop collecting or, or something else is, is the, is what appeals to them or even just gaming, um, which is, uh, seems to be for some generations, that's their toy that they grew up with is, you know, a video game console. Uh, and of course there's certainly been quite a few great star Wars games over the years. And, um, uh, so that maybe that's how they'll interact with their Star Wars, their version of Star Wars. Now, Ryan, we're getting towards the end of the hour now, so I want to move on to swag um, towards the end and, sure. and looking at um, Celebration London next year. So, first of all, are you coming to Celebration London? Um, will there be a Georgia Lions presence there? And the, the swag that you guys have done has been another level. You've, you've taken it above and beyond some of the things I've seen recently. Are you as, uh, busy sketching out ideas for that now? Uh, so I do hope to go to London. Um, I have, have a plane, not a plane ticket, but a, I have a hotel booked and I have my event tickets. I The key thing will be I have to make sure I have the time off, which is still uh, a bit away. You know, our work schedule doesn't get released till the beginning of the year. Um, and so, but I've put in the request. It most likely will happen. Um, so I should should be able to make it to London for the first time, first international celebration for me. As far as Georgia Alliance um, having a table, probably not. Uh, you do need a certain amount of um, manpower to, to have a booth like that. And, you know, I don't think we'll be able to get that number of members over to staff a table in that way. But I do believe there's, you know, uh, the the different regional clubs from the United States are kind of partnering together and to have a coalition of sorts um, and get a joint table. So, you know, so of course that, that, that may be how we have a presence, uh, but, you know, not specifically just the Georgia Alliance, but yeah, I do hope to make it to London. So we'll see. Well, now, Ryan, thank you very much for your time. I've, I've learned a lot about Luke Jedi in particular in this interview, and I'm sure we're going to get lots of good uh, feedback from our listeners. But, you know, you're truly generous in sharing your photographs, now, Ryan. Um, I would really like to make it out of Georgia one day, and I'd love to certainly get them on you some of my socials. Uh, Richard, you're welcome anytime. Don't need to wait for an event. If you're ever here in the States, he has an open door here for you. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> right, thanks very much, Ryan. It's been a great, great interview. Um, you know, you're generous of your time. You're generous for everything you do in our community. Um, your daily portion on the Georgia group, fantastic. It's the Georgia uh, Facebook group is the only one that seems to come up on my page cycle every single day. Some of the others only see them every three or five days. Um, so there must <laughs> be something in the algorithm there that's working for you. <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess people are reading them, so which is probably why yes. it's showing up. So. Absolutely. Right, thank you very much, Narayan. It's been a blast, and uh, you know, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, your time off. Oh, thank you, Richard. That's an absolute pleasure, and congratulations on your upcoming wedding.
copyright licensee. When you put this down, Andy, I thought he spelt it wrong. I thought was, I thought we've done Deco already. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. I've never heard. <laughs> I've never heard of the House of Deco. It sounds like a, a Japanese kind of triad gang. The House of Deco. Yeah, it's it's very niche, but it's brief. And brief is good. I think brief is good. I think it's like you know, we don't have to do the big licensees every single month. The small, the better. We we should get down to ones who've done, you know, like we did last month, one item. There are a few out there who've literally done one little tiny thing. Are you going to ask us if we had a party when we were a kid? Of course I am, Jason. Oh, Come on. I remember looking through some photographs of parties. Didn't, didn't have a lot of photographs of stuff, but most of it photographs of parties. So parties used to be sitting around your front room with a bunch of people from school you actually did like, or maybe not, and stuffing your face full of food and looking at the last party, well, a kid's party I had when I was about, well, goodness knows what age I was, four or five or something. The food looked quite healthy. It was like carrots and stuff and green things. I mean, goodness sake. There's obviously sweets and cakes and stuff, but I was quite quite shocked by it. But nothing interesting. Plates were normal. Plates were normal. They were plates from you know mother's cupboard. They weren't this throwaway plate thing that we got into. We never we never into that. Not until later. So we were trusted with cutlery and and things and and cups and stuff. You know, probably plastic, but um, you know we were trusted. But yeah, it's just just pictures of me stuff on my face really with stuff. I think I've got a nice picture of me receiving an Incredible Hulk 12-inch from Palatoy at one um, at one party. But uh, most of them is literally me with a face full of food. And it's one of my only memories I have early on is I can remember just sitting with my dad's knee with a face stuffed full of uh, rice pudding when I was about two years old. And that's it. So let's have a think. Uh, we'll just start with Richard. No chance. No, he didn't have friends. Friends were evil. Uh, they could teach him the dark ways of Dungeons & Dragons, so they weren't allowed. Uh, Jason, I reckon Jason, you're quite a sociable person, so I reckon you did have kids' parties and you had, you know, haggis cakes, haggis on toast, haggis sweets, thistle sticks, all that sort of Scottish stuff that you would have as a kid. Um, spoons and Preston, you would have definitely party people just like me, you'd have been at a party. Um, you probably went around, you know, you would have taken gifts to your friends, you would have probably taken a nice plate of crisps to your friends to eat. So uh, let's get Richard over done with first. Richard, you'd have been stabbed, wouldn't you, for having a party? You weren't allowed parties. Yeah, definitely didn't have a single party that I can recall. I knew that. Um, I did go to a Star Wars party to Wimpy. Ooh. Um, and that was a Star Wars themed party. Uh, I don't remember much about it. And I do remember being at a party at a local church hall and... The person whose birthday it was received a received a cap too, because we couldn't figure out where to stick the stickers. Um, it took ages to work out that the one one of them went right on the bottom. So yeah, I do do remember those, but other than that, nothing. You never had a party around your house, Richard, for your birthday. Not until I was older, much older. That's quite surprising. That. I thought everyone did. Right, Jason, thistle cakes. Um, I, I think the, the there were at least a couple of kids kind of parties where you you know you went along and you all got party favors and stuff and there's i think i had one and then some other friend i went to some of my friends one but the one i do have a clear memory on is hogmanay so at hogmanay all these adults filled up the house and i wasn't invited so i came out they let me stay up and then one of my dad's mates said something to me and i dove across and knocked over an entire table full of drinks Finish that, Jason, because I used to be Mr. Clumsy as a kid because I was bigger than most of the kids. 
I remember oh, I had some dreadful moments breaking other kids' toys by mistake and getting that kind of like, how dare you break their toy? And uh, yeah, I was, I was just so clumsy. I remember my cousin's place broke something, but they're just touching it. Just had that knack of breaking everything. So no parts for you, Jason, either. Um, spoons, you were a party boy. You would gone to every party. You'd have been that little little kid with his chubby cheeks full of cake in the corner. Uh, yeah, I don't think my cheeks were ever that chubby. Always a, a slightly scrawny child. Um, <laughs> Not full of cake, though. When you were Well, full of cake. Always too much cake in I'm there. Still, I'm still full of cake. I do like my cake. Um, do you know what? It's, it's really difficult to remember. So... Uh, certainly in my later kind of preteen years, I do remember a couple of quite vivid parties at, at my house. Maybe I was nine, something like that, maybe nine or ten. The lads from your class at school, I don't know, girls invited, of course, not that age. Um, all the lads from school would come round. And I remember, I haven't got that many vivid memories of opening Star Wars toys. So this was clearly Jedi era. I remember David Morris giving me a Jedi Stormtrooper for my Ooh. birthday at this party. And I'd also got this remote control Jeep. As that one of that must be my main present for that for that um, year. And I remember driving the stormtrooper around my kitchen floor in the remote control jeep. Oh. So it's a good, good combination. So just, you open the toy, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> but what I don't remember about any of these things is is the food. I just don't. There was cake, presumably, but I don't. I don't remember the food being a big thing. And, and you know, watching my kids at parties these days, it's just like a. It's interruption to having fun. They just wolf it down as quickly as possible, make a massive mess and and leg it away and i'm guessing i was probably like that but the but the other party i remember uh having a, at that house was probably the year later so maybe 10 11 so sort of just growing out of playing with toys but do you i think they were called rough riders do you remember there was a little craze of kind of tiny four before battery powered little trucks like four-wheel drive trucks but and and you'd build courses with sticks and planks and rocks and they'd drive all over every every lad in class had one of these so i had a sort of rough i think if they were called rough riders but a, a party for these trucks and we just built stuff around my back garden and and drove them but but beyond outside of those two i just don't really remember one there was one when we lived lived in london and that was quite vivid but maybe because there's photos of it mum and mum and dad put on a pelham puppet show in the you know like the little we had a little house Hounslow, and there was like from the kitchen to the living room whatever there was a little hatch in the wall service and, hatch yeah yeah and they used that as like a little theatre for the Pelham puppets <laughs> <laughs> I remember I remember liking that uh, but other than that yeah I don't remember but yeah I did get invited to to my friends parties and it's just if you're that age you just run around fill up on sweets and cake far too much sugar annoy the parents for a bit and then you all go home but, but good that, fun you said about girls i had loads of girls at my parties maybe when like i was younger but that yeah. certainly middle school so we're oh yeah 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 nine, about, yeah, nine to nine to exactly 11 girls were evil then but before yeah that, exactly was... yeah no before you wouldn't want them coming around having a rough riders party they wouldn't like no, it no of course not no but, but I mean, yeah I at, at a younger age yeah definitely it's um yeah, definitely much more mixed then. But the, but and it's mostly because, most because you, yeah, you, most because you wouldn't have invited them anyway, but your parents would have. Exactly. You know, yeah. Oh, we've got to invite Sarah because you've invited her brother, so she's got to come. And, 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 the, sit there. and the schools I went to, bizarrely for London, it was like a tiny school. Um, and like, so the classes were like mixed for year groups because there weren't enough of them a single year 
to be in in the class so yeah there would that would have been a kind of everybody from the year would have been invited around probably like 14 15 kids or something like that oh god what a nightmare so um so yeah but i don't you know you get some people hire the village hall and and things like that i don't remember us ever doing doing that just don't it's all about presence at that age, isn't it? <laughs> kind of give me, give me the presents and clear off. That's the, I thought. It was, I thought about Kipling's tea cakes. I thought that's what it was all about then. Yeah, no idea what we'd be, or even yeah, did we have, did we have paper party plates? You know, that's clearly where we're going with this, this conversation. I have no idea. I tell you what, I'll ask my mum next time. I yeah, see you it. need to ask exactly. You need to ask your mum. Right, um, come on, Preston. I, I reckon you're like me. I reckon you had loads of parties. You're a party boy. Party on, dude. Uh, yeah, not too many parties, I don't think. I mean, we sort of went through phases when we were, when we were growing up. So phase one, when we were really quite small, was uh, um, having it wasn't the whole class. Um, I don't think the idea of or the the concept of having the whole class round for a party had quite started then in the seventies. But uh, having a few mates, perhaps seven or eight to come round and do the you know the musical bumps and pass the parcel and uh, all those old favorites and then have your um, your party tea with your crisps and your jelly and your sandwiches oh, and your jelly cocktail sausages and birthday cake and uh, yeah all all, all that all I, t- those, I tell uh, you why they don't have those sort of things anymore as such is because we all used to live very close to each other nowadays people go to school you know over here, I mean, I've got the lads who play football. I'm like they're 15 now, but you know, they're, they're you know, they're all at different schools all across the area. No one was living in one little area, you know. Yeah, where, where I, I grew up, everyone was in within. You know, we'd all hang around with each other as kids, or some of us would. And it would be two minutes away. You know, we'd all live on the same road almost. So we'd live near the school, and we'd all live on the same road near the school. No one was being driven into the school. We all walked to school because we were all within walking distance. But now. You got to like apply for schools. Goodness knows how you lot with kids do it, but you know there's there's someone who lives near me, and they've got to travel to the next town for a school, and they're only he's only like ten. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, nightmare. It it does help to have a wife who's a teacher. <laughs> oh, now we know the secrets. <laughs> that's, the, that's the way in. Yeah. Um. Anyway, we we weren't very old when those sort of parties dried up, and I, I, having been through exactly the same with my kids, I can understand why it just becomes too much hard work after a while. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you, you don't want sticky kids around your house touching your items. No, especially, it, especially you, Andy. You don't want anyone touching your well, your stuff. No, ex- exactly. To to be honest, when I mean nowadays, it, it, it's it's the done thing, isn't it, to invite the whole class round? So thirty kids round in your house? No, oh, not God. not happening. So that's why you take we, to McDonald's and just feed them. Crap. Well, we. We'd have the, we, you know, we we'd be hiring the local church hall or something like that for um, for kids parties. But anyway, going back to my own childhood, from the age of probably about eight, nine, ten, something like that, we'd start having just sort of two or three friends round, and it would be for some sort of activity or some sort of an event. So I can remember having a video party. We you'd hire a movie or two and watch that. Uh, I can remember going out to the local pitch and putt golf course, uh, going swimming, going to uh, local BMX track. So you uh, cinema, of course. BMX, Andy on a BMX. BMX. That must be. A, oh, you got a picture of that somewhere. There just might be. I'll. Uh, I'll oh, you've got I'll, to dig that out. I'll have to see if I can hide it deep. <laughs> I want to see you on a BMX. <laughs> So uh, yeah, event party. So you'd go and do your do your activity, have your fun, and then come back and have um, fish fingers and chips or something. Fish fingers, oh, 
and the and the birthday cake always had a birthday cake, and uh, had a, a couple of Star Wars ones uh, around about seventy nine eighty. Um, ninth or tenth birthday, Mum made me a, sh- a cake in the shape of the Millennium Falcon. Oh, I have nice. got a photo of that. We'll find that one out for you. Yeah, I mean, the only Star Wars thing we ever did as a in a kind of group party was when the first person who had a video got Empire Strikes Back on video, and we all went around the house and watched it because it was like, oh my god, Empire Strikes Back! I've seen it since you know, nineteen eighty, and we'd all grown up a little bit, and it was just like, oh my goodness, someone's got a, oh you know uh, Neil's got a video. Let's go in his house. I remember, it's all sitting there. There must have been like thirty kids in his front room watching it one Saturday afternoon and his mum or dad came home and turfed us all out. It's like, oh, yeah, cheers. Now, I'll tell you something that we had in the 70s that we don't have these days. And it was a, it was an absolute must for every kid's party. Do you remember the pink jelly rabbit or the blancmange rabbit sitting in a sea of green jelly? No. You, you must have had that. Yeah, we had them. Mum still got the mould. Yeah, a rabbit jelly mould, and you do a bit of green jelly and cut it all up, look like grass to spread around. I still, it. I still, jelly is still my weakness now. I mean, if anyone wants to seduce me, just use jelly. I'm gone. <laughs> I'm completely gone. I've had it. You know. Now, again, we need to translate this, don't we? Because our American listeners are listening to this and thinking we're talking about jam. Oh yeah, we're not jello, isn't it? Or something. That's it. Yeah, jello. we're not talking about jam. We're talking about jello. In 1899, a partnership was formed between a Mr. Daly and a Mr. Wilkinson to manufacture paper doilies and ornamental paper for mantel shelves and houses in Islington, London. Eight years later, Mr. Wilkinson left the partnership and a business known as Daly & Co. was set up. This produced goods under the name of Deco, D-E-E-K-O, and came from the D of Daly and K-O instead of the usual Co for company. The company eventually moved across London and settled in Tottenham and became well known for making lace paper doilers, serviettes, paper baking cases, cardboard food containers, cake frills and all sorts of moulded paper food containers. They kept producing such goods into the 1990s with Deco Party being used, continuing to produce goods until 2018. They really were the go-to company for um, disposable paper party wear back in the day um and th- there we go paper eco-friendly sustainable I yeah i mean you could, you could you could pretty much eat this stuff <laughs> it's so <laughs> thin so thin you can sort of chop you know it doesn't matter if you've got a bit of cake and you take a corner off it um you, you know it ain't gonna kill kids is it it's not and uh yeah i, I reckon i knew a few kids who probably would have done that so. <laughs> yeah i'd have probably done it uh, yeah that cake was particularly gooey or some jelly on a plate, I'd have probably gone through the plate to get to the jelly. But there's, yeah. a few, there's a few design things here. There's not a lot of products. But so let's have a quick mention of the, the actual design stuff, because it's they've kind of gone with their own colour range, haven't they? They have. It's a very, uh, yeah, very limited colour palette, isn't it? But it's gone a little bit mad. I mean, it's they've gone all oh, colours. And, you know, I mean, the, looking at the designs... You know, Darth Vader, you know, um, we've got yellow, kind of yellow and blue, sort of Ukrainian uh, X-Wing fighters. Uh, the ships seem to be a certain colour. Uh, the characters are all, you know, they've just kind of shaded, they've used the shading and done it. The only thing that looks correct is C-3PO, who's on the napkins. He's yellow, but R2-D2, he's gone all over the place. R2-D2 is also yellow with red bits. And blue bits. And, and blue bits, white, yeah. white bits. And anything that goes bits. 
and there's, there's X-wings with yellow and blue, and blue then a bit of yellow. Um, and there is there is a one design incident we're going to have to talk about a bit later on, but there was an incident. There's also uh, on the plates a, a red X-wing fighter with white bits. But yeah, the characters Luke's got a bit yellow. I think they're trying to go with a bit of like you know they try, they were trying to to jazz it up a bit. But so yeah, the colour palette is it's consistent. I give them that, but it's a bit mad, isn't it? It's lots of orange. There is, but they 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 did a similar thing in the comics, didn't they? The Marvel comics they did sort of they, all the X wings were coloured up sort of odd shades of red and yellow and blue and um you know as you say just in the, an attempt to jazz it up, make it look a bit more interesting. I think uh, for years I thought due to one frame in the Marvel comics, I thought X-Wings had got yellow noses. So my Palatoy X-Wing, which came cheap from a toy shop, um, it, it, I don't know whether it was used as a display model or just one that had got separated from it, its box, but basically I got this loose X-Wing, no sticker sheet, no box, no um, inserts, no nothing. Um, and I got my dad to paint it up and I said, it, it's got to have a yellow nose because that's what's in the picture in the comic. <laughs> So yeah. my Palatio X-Wing had a bright yellow nose until I realised that it shouldn't. And I told my dad to take it all off again. He said, well, that's not, that's not as easy. <laughs> but, yes, you fool. Yes. Bless him, he did with, um, I don't know what he used, turps and sandpaper and whatever else. <laughs> sandpaper. <yeah. laughs> oh, my goodness. But yeah, I mean, if, you, if I guess if you look at the images, you know, you've got quite stern things. You know, there's, there's no Chewbacca's, there's no... Uh, there's no fluffy creatures. It's you know, the the people they've chosen. You know, we've got the plates with Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and Ben having a fight. Very, yeah. There's nothing colourful really in these pictures, but they've made them colourful. Yeah, they've got all kids want colour, so we're going to give them colour. You know, R2 is you know normally quite shiny. You can't do that, but they've gone with colour. X-Men fighters are normally a bit white. They've gone with colour. Yeah, and they just made their own. They've made their own colours, haven't they? They've just gone with their own colour scheme to just jazz it up a bit. I think. But it they just stands out. Yeah, it just stands out, doesn't it? It definitely stands out. Yeah, it's a very distinctive looking line, isn't it? Um, you've got. Uh, I, I don't know whether you can um, see on some of the photos I posted, but the the cups. You've got an interesting little trio as well, because um, you've got Han, Luke, and Leia. Um, look as if they're taken from the Chantrell artwork poster. Um, yeah. you, so you got Han pointing his blaster um, off to the left. You got with Luke a red pointing shirt. his blaster straight at you. Well, exactly. <laughs> Leia pointing the blaster to the uh, to the right, but Han's got a red shirt and it looks like pale blue jeans. Luke has got this uh, odd yellow and I mean, he, he looks almost like he's half yellow and half white, doesn't he? Split down the middle. Yeah. Um, and then Leia also um, nice white frock with yellow and blue highlights to it. Like I said, if you just left those their natural colours, it wouldn't have looked particularly exciting for kids. It would just been white, white, black and white, wouldn't it? If you just went for the colour scheme of the characters. But they've gone, no, we well, we can't get we we need a bit of red in there, need a bit of blue in there, need a bit of yellow in there, jazz it up. Yeah, it makes it all look a bit more exciting, doesn't it? And uh, it does. If, if you're eating your if your your jelly rabbits on that on that plate, you want it to look exciting underneath. Absolutely. And hey, it's the seventies. Well, yeah, that's that's very true. So the, when did these actually come out? Just out of interest, you know. Uh, I believe it was '78. Um, so okay. it, it was in the the run of product fairly soon after the movie release in the UK. Okay, so that, was, that is yeah, exactly. That is quite uh, on top of it for those parties because kids would have wanted Star Wars parties at the time. I was a little bit too young for Star Wars party. I would have been four at the time, 
and parties would have been about cake rather than Star Wars and jelly, obviously. Yeah, I mean, do, do any of the guys here, anybody remember having these as, at a party? I'm sure we had plates, just plates. I can't remember any of the others. And I've got a funny feeling that we didn't have the plates for a party that my dad just picked them up from somewhere and brought them in because he thought we'd like them. Um, and I can remember. Your dad was too cool. I can remember having a few of these kicking around the house, and we'd use them as frisbees and whatever. But uh... no, I don't, don't recognise <laughs> so, them at all. The the yellow and white of Luke though does remind me of of the Pascal stickers. It's kind of yes. it's trying to jazz up the. It's a bit bit too white without a bit of extra colour. So they sort of add random bits to it, don't they? It's like the X wings being red. Um, but yeah, don't ring any bells whatsoever. No, no but you you're absolutely right. The sort of naivety of the artwork is very similar to the Pascal stickers, isn't it? They're very nice. Oh, yeah, if, I've never even heard of them before today, but I'll, uh, if I see a set anywhere, I'll definitely pick them up. Yeah, I think I've seen the ta- the table covers seem to ring a bell, and maybe the napkins. But I've not seen the plates at all ever. I mean, I might have seen them and thought they were something else, but yeah, I've, I mean, are these are these hard to get hold? I'm assuming the image you put into show notes that's yours, Andy. Some come up more often than others, and the the tablecloths you can generally find on eBay any day of the week. I'm there. <laughs> just don't he's start like, him off. Have like you got any of these, Jason? You're you're a bit of a UK buyer, are you? Don't have any of these, no. What do you think of them as a UK thing? Very nice. Oh, he's he's off. You go another You shouldn't do this, Andy. You just cause competitiveness <laughs> in these things. So, so do you have the whole range then? Which we should go over what you actually uh, have. As as far as I'm aware, yeah, yeah. Let's let's get on to the range, shall we? Um, talked about the table covers. So these come in a plastic wrap, plastic bag, um, sort of crinkly, um, loose plastic. They fold out quite big, um, but in the pack, they're probably about A3 size, but a bit longer, something like that. So you mentioned a piece of A3 paper, but elongated. I would imagine that's probably about the size. On the plastic wrap, it says three deco table covers, um, and then Tischtucker, which I assume is German, and Naps, which is French. 35 by 35 inches, 90 by 90 centimetres. There you are, that's the folded out size. And then on the on the front, which is the bit that you see on display, um, you've got the Star Wars logo in red at the top. But it's the, the, the logo that was used on a lot of the early British products. Um, so it's the logo that sort of recedes into the distance, like the, the sort of cut-off triangle. Uh, coming down from that, you've got two X-Wings swooping down, one uh, a little bit further forward than the other. You've got Darth Vader's head in the background, sort of floating in space, disembodied head, um, and the Death Star. Below that, you've got the um, an image of a Star Destroyer seen from the back view, and it's firing on what looks like a planet, and there's an explosion going off, and uh, you can see some sort of buildings and radar dishes and things on the planet down below. So that's the table covers, three of those in a pack. Napkins also in this sort of crinkly plastic clear wrap. On the front of the packaging, it says Deco. 20 super soft napkins made in England. Super uh, soft. Super soft. What, were they hard before then? These napkins are hard. Kids are like cutting themselves on. Well, it makes, makes you wonder, doesn't it? Yeah. And, then you, and then you had the soft ones and they weren't, they weren't quite good enough. So they had super to go super soft. soft. Yeah, super soft for little kids' faces. A white background with a sort of blue detail and, a certain, and it almost looks like planets in the background sort of rounded shapes there's an x-wing flying towards you and this is the one with yellow wings 
Well, you've got C-3PO stood there with R2-D2. And uh, as you were saying earlier, this is the R2 that's got um, red and yellow and blue panels on his white body. And the Star Wars logo, again, that red, uh, that same um, early Star Wars logo. So uh, that's your napkins, 20 in a pack for those. I'm going to do the plates, Andy, because that's something I want to talk about on the plates. So You you go for it. You take plates. Right, right. You have a... You have, um, a pack of six by nine inch plates and eight by seven inch plates. Now, the thing on the plates is like, ooh, it's just getting on my nerves slightly. So you've got, uh, well, I guess it's an orange. I'm assuming these, this is orange. It's not my eyes going mad. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, orangey it's red. Or, or, orangey red. It's more orangey red than orange, red. I'd say. So you've got orangey red plate. You've got, you've got Ben Kenobi and Darth Vader in a kind of blue. They've kind of been blued up. So any flesh colored is in blue. And they're having a fight. With Luke Skywalker standing in between them, so you know that's, that's decent enough. You got your X-wing, got a couple of X-wing, got some Tie fighters at the top coming in. But there's something about Luke, what he's doing, which is very naughty and would not be allowed to happen now. Can you see what his left foot is doing? Treading on the R of Star Wars. Treading on the R of Star Wars. Can you imagine that happening today? A Star Wars logo on a, on a thing where you could actually not have it full, <laughs> full on. I guess this is pre... No, there was a trademark Star Wars thing in there. So, yeah, the brand, again, I've talked about this quite a lot, where they've taken liberties with the design. That would not be allowed. I mean, it's cutting off a word of the branding. You know, normally you have... There must be, you know, 0.1 centimetres around the logo. And being... You know, so you have to have it so it stands out. And I don't think I've ever seen a branding document that would allow that. Shocking, that is. Luke's left foot needs to be chopped off by Darth Vader. Yeah, there you go. Or tucked in behind the logo even. But yeah, you're right. Interesting. But, but you see, it, if it was tucked in behind, it would look odd. Or I think they could have just rotate, maybe just rotated it a little bit. And Star Wars could have been a little bit to the left, maybe. Yeah, but they, yeah. or shrunk Luke down slightly. Or... Yeah, it's a bad... I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm no, I'm no like, professional or anything, but that was that's a bit naughty. I don't know. I, I quite like it. It's almost like he's sort of coming out of the frame at you. He is, but I said to, to cover a Star Wars logo, but maybe the Star Wars logo should be at the top rather than the bottom. Could be, but, uh, but but you've got TIE fighters coming out, out of the sky at the top. So. You have, but they could be moved around somewhere over the fence <laughs> head or to the left. But um, also, but we, I mean, it, it, it's something I've seen a few times, and it, and it does actually, you know, ignoring my critique, which is when that Star Wars logo is like that, it does add a little element of 3D ness to the picture because it's going off into the space. You know, because you've got that, it actually it actually makes it look a little bit. It makes Luke stand out like he's standing on top of it, which actually gives it, like I said, a slight three D effect. It's quite a, you know, and of course the plate is, you know, it's slightly uh, molded. Um, so yeah, that will actually make the plate look quite cool. You're almost putting your biscuits into space, which I wouldn't do, obviously, or your yeah. sausages. And we we've said before, haven't we? That's one of the delights about the early Star Wars collectibles from the first movie. Um, that by Empire and Jedi, it was all getting homogenized. Yeah. That, um, they were using the same graphics and the same artwork and the same character images. Whereas for Star Wars, um, a lot of the companies were just allowed to come up with their own thing, their own yeah, artwork. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We see that we, we we do see a set of similar artwork across the board. This is the this is actually quite a unique. I don't think we've seen anything like this, like this before, have we? No, we haven't. So they've obviously been given stock images because you, you can tell where a lot of them are taken from. The the Luke is from the Chantrell poster and. Uh, Vader and uh, Obi-Wan fighting um, is taken from a, a, a movie still. 
and the X-Wings are from movie stills or production images. I don't so, think they have been given this. I think they, they, they were just given, here's some Star Wars images, do what you want. And they've drawn these things in. I mean... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They've, they've, they've taken those images and they've coloured them and they've chopped them. They've, yeah, they've, exactly. they've sort of car- cartoonized them, haven't they? Because I've not seen this before, ever. You know, this, this to me, unless I'm proving me wrong, I'm putting myself out there, I've never seen this design, these designs before. You know, this particular kind of design. So they've actually done something unique, which I think is quite cool. And not used, uh, yeah, because we've seen those kind of like marvel kind of images with Darth Vader doing his stance and all that sort of stuff, arms crossed. We've seen that across the board, but this is something totally new and different, which I kind of like. You might compare it to something like the Clearo range. Remember the, the Clearo but, um, soaps and bubble baths and things? And again, they came up with entirely their own artwork. Nothing at all like it anywhere in any other product line. Um, and the, these are the same. Wonderful. Quirky. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, like I said it's just a little bit, you know, they've they've gone for target market. I mean, I'm assuming they were quite popular. I said there was a big company who, were, well, someone who was famous for churning this stuff out. So we asked plates. So uh, we had plates. Uh, we had paper cups. You kind of talked about the paper cup already. Yeah, that was, hand, that was hand eight. Luke and Leia, uh, eight of them um, packed in shrink wrap with and they, all these products, the, the cups and plates, they've got a, um, a, a deco sticker. Yeah, they like their, their branding, don't they? They've got it on everything, you know. They're not put into the corner. The tablecloths have got massive great deco tablecloth covers. The cups have got deco cups. Um, they, they like to get it. I mean, so I can't believe I've never heard of them with the deco and everything. I mean, look, look at those napkins, deco, massive letters on the packaging. Massive, you know, covering up everything almost. You can't miss it, can you? So it cups. Um, what else, Andy? What else? What's the final thing we have? What else? Well, the the final thing is probably the rarest item, as far as I'm aware, mm-hmm. the party table pack. And I've only ever seen or heard of one of these in existence, um, <laughs> which ha- happens to be my, <laughs> in my yours. <laughs> yours. So yeah. Jason's going to get really narc now because he's not. I was just looking on eBay for that. Yeah, you've just ruined him. So the Star Wars Party Table Pack is in a plastic bag. It's got a header card with the big Star Wars logo set at a jaunty angle. And it says copyright 1977, 20th Century Fox. And then it says Party Table Pack. And then below that, in these little star bursts, it tells you what's in there. So there is one table cover, two plates, uh, eight and a half inch, eight serviettes, eight plates, six and a half inch, and eight cups. And uh, there they all are. Um, they're not bagged separately. They're just all in this plastic bag loose together. On the back of the header card, uh, back is identical to the front. The plastic bag is all sort of folded over, so all you see at the back of the um, pack is the rear of the uh, the, um, the tablecloths. And again, look at the logo. What the, the liberties with the logo? It's not only they haven't done that. I don't think on anything else. They've given it a background and they whacked it in the corner. <laughs> Stick it in the corner sideways. Oh yeah, just how many degrees is that? You know, thirty Stick degrees. Stick it on a slant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they well, won't be allowed to do that now. Ooh, George Lucas or wherever be Kathleen Kennedy be coming around your house with a big stick. That is <laughs> that is more liberties taken, but it kind of works because of the fact that it's got a. They've straight, yeah. They put the straight side on the side of the package, so it actually does look quite good. It does. It's quite a nifty design, isn't it? Yeah, it's actually not bad. Yeah, considering part of the U.S. a unique item, and you might have the last one. 
Well, you never know. I'd, I'd love to hear if there are any others out there, if any of our listeners have come across one. No one's got that, Andy. It's just you or that lady on Facebook you talk to. You know, the one with all the fantastic collection. That's the only other person I could think has got one. Sarah, yeah, quite quite Sarah, possibly. Yeah. yeah. There's no way she does not have one of these. There's no way. Although you two would be fighting over it. Andy, it's not even listed on the Star Wars archive. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what, what do they know? Another archive <laughs> thing. Oh, you need... We, but you can put your picture on it. You can be... You can be a question one day is Andy Preston on the yes he is on the archive is he part of the editorial team yes you need to get yourself on there Andy a, a contributor you need to be part of the editorial team because you need to put your picture of your item on there which is not there not yeah there. well you, you never know I, I have talked about it to Gus so he, he, he does know it exists but uh, send him a picture uh, force him when he comes over <laughs> because of the London give him a big pile of like stuff like right, Lisa's got to go on the archive this page here this page here give him pictures force him, force and, what, him. And, what, and while we're at it let's talk about Marks and Spencers yes yes exactly <laughs> they need to be told Andy. It's, it's not good enough maybe it's like it's our unique campaign for the celebration is to get the uh, collector's get, archive up to up to British standards get the British stuff properly recognised absolutely exactly. but I think most of it's going to be yours where we yeah. see Duncan Jenkins on every page, it's going to be Andy Preston on every well, page. Some, some of it, anyway. Well, you know, but I, yeah, I think quite a lot of it, Andy. Let's not hold back here. I think you and Jason could probably put, pretty much cover everything, I think. Right, is that is that us done? That, is, that is just about it. The only other things worth mentioning, um, the... Um, the, the boxes that this stuff came in, they're not shop display boxes. You wouldn't display stuff in these in the in your shop window. But uh, um, they did come boxed. I've got a box um, with a sticker on the front of it. It says number nine plates, brackets sixes. Oh, my goodness. Um, so that basically means nine-inch plates, and there are six of them in packs. That's going to be worth a million pounds. Star Wars 12 packs, it said. So you'd have got 12 packs in this box. Um, and the box is taped up on the top. It was open from the bottom, so it displays quite nicely. So uh, that's a, a nice, unusual little piece. I, I have seen similar cardboard boxes for the tablecloths and things, so uh, I'm assuming that these boxes existed for the others. And then the, the other thing I've got, which is a bit unusual, and again, possibly a unique item, is an uncut roll of paper plates. <laughs> so this is probably about three feet wide um and I, I don't know how long it is um if you unroll it it's probably several meters long um just with lots and lots of repeated patterns of these plates and uh, of course they they've not been cut out and they've not been um pressed out so you've not got the the sort of plate shape the ridges in them this uncut sheet must have gone through a punch and then i, I guess individual plates then go through some sort of mold or some sort of stamping process and uh, exactly. there you go get your molded party plate out at the end party plates actually how fragile are these things they, they don't look like gonna last fifth another 40 years they're reasonably chunky cardboard so yeah they're, 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 they're not actually paper you know they they will they will hold you so no, i mean the, things like the napkins and stuff i always think the napkins are going to just deteriorate at some stage well they're they're, they're paper you know they're, they'll They'll last as long as any other paper product. They're super soft paper, Andy. If they get any moisture in them, well, they, this they is true. Some, I have seen them fairly discoloured sometimes, but ones uh, mm, that I've got are all right. So keep keep them properly packaged in proper atmosphere. I think, I think they should be all right. You need to get uh, you need to get the acrylic boys to do acrylic for um, napkins. There you go. <laughs> to I'll, seal them in forever. I'll ask Christian next time I see him. Yeah, get him, you get, get him on it. 
Yeah, it must take the same size as a Meccano card. <laughs> it's going to be a Whack it in there. there. That's it. Right, are we yeah. done? I think we're done. Brilliant. Right, we're doing another one next month. Goodbye. I'm delighted to welcome Narayan back for Rotted Fire. Are you ready, Narayan? I am. What was the first figure purchased as a child? Tough to remember, but I seem to think it's probably either C-3PO or R2-D2. What's your favourite cardback image? Uh, Luke Jedi. What's your favourite figure, vehicle or playset that you wish they'd made but they didn't? Han Stormtrooper. Your favourite foreign licence? Uh, Lily Letty. What's your favourite Star Wars character on screen? Favourite character on screen? Yoda. Your biggest Star Wars collecting regret? Not buying more vintage in the 90s. (laughs) (laughs) Your favourite con or event that you've attended? Tie between the New York Annual 2019 and uh, Pennsylvania Regional Ice in 2021. What was the best time period to be a Star Wars fan? Oh, right now, I think. Your favourite pre-production piece? Luke Jedi photo art. Your favourite Star Wars movie? Empire Strikes Back. Mandalorian or Book of Boba Fett? Mandalorian. Your favourite Star Wars costume on screen? Luke Jedi's outfit. And Orion, if you had to take just one item with you to another planet where money was not going to be worth anything, what would it be and why? Uh, my childhood Darth Vader case that had some of my childhood figures in it. It has the most nostalgic value for me. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the Vintage Rebellion, Narayan. I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of this one. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Right, and guys, so as promised, it's been a great show, so let's wrap this up now. We've covered a huge different areas, lots of toy products, lots of paper products, um, lots of corner items, really, really great. So delighted to see all this new stuff keep coming out. Now, feedback from last month uh, wasn't that long ago recorded, so many thanks to Darth Bobby and Alistair Mack for their comments on Stars from UK. Alistair Mack in particular has said, uh, amused to hear Richard telling Jason, not to list every item of swag in existence, followed by Jason giving a roundup of just about every possible item of swag. Uh, keep up the great work, guys. Much appreciated. Yep, absolutely. That, that just doesn't listen. Highlights. It was you, limited highlights. You just don't listen, but never mind. That's Jason. Huge thanks to Naraya Nake for his interview this month. If you would like to be an interview guest in the Vintage Rebellion, by all means, just hit any of us up. We can be contacted on swtrpodcast at gmail.com or search Vintage Rebellion on YouTube, on Facebook, on Twitter, and probably many other places that I don't know about. Once again, thanks to Chris Sportius for keeping an eye on all of our social media and responding to messages as and when. Um, myself and Pete spotted a message on Facebook today, which we both looked at, and maybe we'll have a look at that one next month Pete because it seemed quite interesting so guys it's really hot it's really late it's been a great show so it's time to say bye bye it's goodbye from Pete hey mate go on tickets I've got no idea what that meant it's goodbye from Andy Spoons Norton 
Goodbye, all. Make sure you eat lots of sweets at your parties. Goodbye from Jason Smith. Cheers, everyone. I'm just off for my third cold shower of the day. It's a goodbye from Andy Preston. Cheers, guys. Stay cool, everyone, and may the force be with you. And it's a later, guys, from me. And remember... Only you can decide with Star Wars toys. This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All of the original content of this podcast are the intellectual property rights of the Vintage Rebellion. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swtvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't enjoy this podcast, tough. Are Star Wars products going to have the durability of, say, that old favourite, the teddy bear? <laughs> You'll have to excuse me, I'm just hugging my air conditioning unit at this point. There's a lovely, cool basement room. About 30, I think it's been 39 here today, but it's... Uh... Quite cool downstairs. Me and the guinea pig. That sounds very dodgy. You and the guinea pig. What yeah, are you up to? He's snuggling yeah. up to me for warmth. It's that cool. In the basement. Yeah, there's no basements here. Right, are we all here? No. And we're ready to start, or is Andy going to um, nosh on some more sausages? I beg your pardon. He's got sausage. Why isn't he sharing his sausages around? Where's no. your sausages, Andy? He likes a bit of sausage. Oh. Who sausage? doesn't? Who I doesn't just, like sausages? I just had a jacket potato and cheese. Right. I've got a fresh stein of orange juice with ice cubes, and I've got a round tree fruit pastels ice lolly as well. Right. Well, Jason, we couldn't move on because you left the mic on and we heard you couldn't run away. So, we'll make the start again. Actually, Jason, mute. I'm going to go to somebody else if you're sucking on something that's four inches long. Sausage. Right. We're, we're niche, aren't we? We're, we're sort of passionate about our subjects, but we're more we're more Radio 4 than uh, Radio 1, I would say. <laughs> I think we're Test Match Special, but... Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a typical <laughs> 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 broadcast.